Welcome back to Horror Culture, a show the show that discusses all the masterpieces and trashed pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And we're taking you back to the golden age of 2000s horror, and slightly into the 2010s as well, and uh, doing something that we want to do more of this year, which we have a lot more of scheduled in. We're going to go through an entire franchise. Yes, yeah, we're, we're moving towards incorporating more films into our episodes and really having a look at these franchises the, the good the bad and the ugly yes no, no, we're not covering that trilogy but <laughs> um yeah um uh, and we've done it in the past haven't we yes and we really enjoyed yeah. it um i hope you've enjoyed it so well we've always had good feedback on those episodes so Let, let's be honest you don't want to hear us talk about the final destination for an hour and a half no one wants that no one wants to watch the fucking film for an It'd hour be and a half painful to analyze for it, an would, hour it would be really painful but you know i'm sure you're dying to know our opinions on it so we're going to give you this episode where yes. we talk about all of them all five final destination films all five before we get into it um i've been promising this for two weeks now so fan mail's back and just to explain when i say fan mail this is basically our favorite comments we've received yeah. we haven't actually received these through email <laughs> we've got, got a big sack in the room of just postcards and letters from adoring yeah. fans and, so and all those, those thanks for all those nudes we won't be sharing those i, f- I feel like joan crawford um <laughs> And Betty Davis. So, Maz thought I was more angry. Obviously, podcast um, number one fan, Maz, uh, previous guest on the podcast, thought I was more angry than Chris in the Carnival of Souls episode. <laughs> I was. As it went on, the more I spoke about it, I was fucking pissed off. Yeah, I've, I've been um, meditating a lot recently, <laughs> doing a bit of yoga. Oh, so. you were not calm. <laughs> um, she also thinks we are a cute couple, as confirmed on that episode. Thank you for the backup. Thank you. Miss. And uh, that the ghouls from the remake do look like sausages. They do. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for agreeing she, with me. On she's that also one. an Alvira stan now. Thanks yeah. to us. <laughs> yeah. Proud. Proud. Uh, Spilling Guts podcast uh, pointed out that because we've been obviously we've been doing Slay Queen of the Day throughout February for Women in Horror Month. Uh, they pointed out that when we did Linda Blair, we missed out her iconic role as Joni in Alley Seven, uh, which which was a big mistake. Because, I mean, LA7, you can class that as horror. It's definitely scary. (laughs) The acting. I remember parts of that, and then obviously not realising it was Linda Blair until a long time later, and you're like, that was Linda Blair? I was like, oh my God, Linda Blair? You know, like, she was in the biggest horror film of all time, Linda Blair. (laughs) Like, why did her career come to that? And now we've worked our way through Linda Blair's career and realised that LA7 probably isn't the... Like, it's probably in the middle in terms of... <laughs> it's definitely a step up from grotesque. Yeah. In terms of budget, I think I think it's somewhere in the middle. Do you think S Club 7 are big Linda Blair fans? Do you think that's why she's there? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I think she happened to be there um, around there at the day. Like, is that Linda Blair? Oh, mate, do you want to be in this show? Like, yeah, of course. Spilling Guts also set an entire... Yeah. Words out. An entire pride flag could be made from Gail Weathers' many looks. That is very true. That is very true. Yeah. Um, I've seen the Speak one on Twitter of Bet Lynch uh, and her <laughs> pride flag outfits. I think Gail Weathers, we could definitely get one. Yeah. Uh, Dan and Cody podcast informed us that Elvira is a goddess. That is correct. 
Uh, and what we what will we watch podcast? That's a hard podcast to say. Uh, what will we watch podcast? Said Barbara Steele is next level and was a perfect match for Joe Dante's tone and style in Piranha, which is true. She absolutely serves in that film. Showing up in a man's outfit, doing a man's job and doing a great job of it. She, she, she does actually. She, she. I don't think she did much comedy, but I think she would have made a great straight woman in comedy. Mm. Um, it, it's that Englishness, isn't it? In, yeah. in a, uh, like, it's that Englishness in a rural American setting that's just, it's kind of weird, but, uh, quite funny as well. Yeah, those, I mean, those comments were relating, obviously, as I said, to our Slay Queen of the Day. Women Horror Month is over now, but if you want any recommendations for any of the, uh, Slay Queens I just mentioned, look at the posts, and there is plenty listed on them. Uh, we're Horror Court Trash Over on Facebook and Instagram, Horror Court Trash on Twitter, keep the comments coming and I will definitely remember to read them out from now on. I know, yeah. Now that Gary's finally reading them out, we need more. Two more. episodes I missed yeah. out. <laughs> so, Final Destination. What is the Final Destination franchise? Um, it's kind of where teen um, horror and very knowing that whole scream thing. Yeah. Meets, yeah, it's very post screen. Yeah, and it's it's where that meets Saw and Saw's very um over the top deaths and very contrived yeah. death sequences where they kind of meet. Yeah. Um so the first film in two thousand was very meta scream. Um, it gave it a different edge and an interesting mm-hmm. edge. I mean, it, it none of them live up to Scream, of course. Um, but as it progressed, it became more and more elaborate and gory yeah. and more like the the source. So I don't think really the I don't think Final Destination ever sort of um created something new within the horror genre, but it was very much in keeping with what was around that time if you understand yeah. what i mean it's it's elaborate deaths um set up um to kill off very one-dimensional characters yeah i mean i don't know about your history with the franchise but i mean when i was younger i really ate that shit oh uh, yeah i fucking love these films um you know whenever the new one would come out it'd be so exciting um it's, it, you know, I mean, I, I think I watched Final Destination 2 first because it was around that time. It was 2003 when the year I was really starting to take films and, and horror films in particular seriously. Um, and, you know, they were just they were a highlight. It was just dumb fun. And, and that's the thing. Watching these back as an adult now, all five films are really fucking dumb. Like, <laughs> even the, yeah. the best in the franchise, they're all fucking dumb. Um, you know, some of the worst characters... In, in horror film history or in these films, you know, but also some of the most inventive death scenes. So, um, what's your history? Um, so I watched the thir- first one, um, not in the cinema or anything. Um, it must have been on TV or something or um, someone lent me a DVD or a VHS. Um, and I didn't watch any of the others. Until uh, 2009, when uh, I was at uni and the Final Destination, or the fourth entry, came out. And we just happened to go see it in the cinema. And I, I thought it was alright. I, <laughs> I thought it was okay. 
Um, hindsight, come on. Um, but I'd never watched any of the other ones, and I didn't actually watch two or five until we watched them for this yeah. episode. I mean, we watched three, four a podcast episode when we were doing uh, Screen Queens for years when yes. we first started out. Um, of course, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. And that was my first real indication into, oh shit, you know, nostalgia goggles are on. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, look, I ate up that late 90s, early 2000s teen movie, um, meta horror. Even Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2. Oh, I didn't watch that, <laughs> fortunately. Um, some of them passed me by, to be fair. But I ate them up. I loved them. You know, I, I watched um, American Psycho 2, and I, I watched um, the House on Haunted Hill remake, and the Urban Legend sequel, and, and I, I loved them, and I, I really loved those films. And then, if I'm being perfectly honest, and I know I run a podcast called Horror Court Trash Over, but I can't, became a bit of a snob when it came to films. And I was like... Oh, why am I watching these when I can now readily get Cronenberg films and watch, you know, George Romero and, you know, I, I watched Dawn of the Dead and I was like, oh, wait, this is way better than this <laughs> shit I've been watching. This is way better than Urban Legend. Um, but then there's a nostalgia involved as well um, now. But, yeah, in in hindsight, they're, they're not really the best, are they? No, and but I think, enjoyable fun. And yeah, it's, it's Saturday night popcorn cinema. It's very much uh, a more basic look at horror. The, this is horror for non-horror fans. You know, it, if you, even if you don't watch horror films, you know everyone knows what Final Destination is. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's the go-to, isn't it? Yeah, and it it it's because it's it's a rinse and repeat formula. Yeah, and, and there's lots of gimmicks in place. Um, to keep it running, you know, it's, yeah, it's fun. It's just yeah, fun. It's, it's, it's like, like with the Saw um, series, it's pretty much the same film in different clothing each time. Um, and there are certain aspects that make it better or worse than the other films, but it's essentially the same thing yeah. five times in a row. But I think it's row. it's easy with Final Destination because I mean Saw has that same story running all the way through. If you randomly watched like Saw five without seeing it, you'd be fucking lost. You'd be like, okay, what's yeah, going but on here? Yeah, with Saw, it's like you know a lot of people do watch it for the death scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Elaborate death scenes. But, but whereas... Real contrived, um, you know, sort of twists and turns. Yeah. Um, but but each film takes... The, the twists and turns are different. Yeah. The kills are different. The characters are different. But it takes that very same plot line mm. where you're going to have to have a twist here. And then, oh, no, it's a red herring. Here's your yeah. twist. It, oh, oh and, and if you're really lucky, there's about three or four more twists yeah. before the film ends. Yeah. But whereas Soros, that storyline running all the way through it, you could literally stick any Final Destination film on at any time oh, without having to watch any of the others to understand yeah, what's going absolutely. on. Yeah. Um, but uh, as we mentioned, it does have some of the most unlikable characters in horror history, some of the best death scenes. So we will be giving you trivia, synopsis and our summary of the most annoying character, most likable character, and the best death scene. Yes. Starting with Final Destination, released in 2000. Uh, believe Ooh, it may sorry, have been... Sorry, it caught me off guard. 
I just think, hearing you say it, 2021 years ago. I think it may Lord. have been released in America even earlier. I think it was 1999 in America. Um, it was direct, set in 2000, though. Yeah. Directed by James Wong, who uh, also made The One with Chet Li. Uh, Dragon Ball Evolution. Is that the one with Jennifer Love Hewitt? I think so. Uh, the X-Files and also Final Destination 3. Budget of $23 million and it grossed just under $113 million. It did well. Big, big money maker. Yeah. Um, getting into trivia, the story was originally the concept for an abandoned X-Files television script, which was inspired by Soul Survivor. Um, Very Twilight Zone. Yeah. Very Twilight yeah, it's, Zone. It's, um, it is also inspired by the Twilight Zone. There's a little later on. Um, oh, excuse me, I do apologize. In trivia. Spoiler alert. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, Kerr Smith and Sean William Scott are in this, because it's 2000. Um, they took motion sickness pills uh, before each plane crash take and were half asleep in those scenes. That's why they aren't shown close up much. It looks like a, a gruelling process for a lot of actors in these films. Some shit yeah, about to get through. very elaborate setups. Yeah. Lots of times people have said that the biggest part of acting is having the patience to wait, yeah. to wait around. Because you're you're looking at an hour and a half film that's taken months and months and months to make, mm-hmm. when really you're only getting about 90 minutes of film that's yeah. actually going to go out there. So there's a lot of waiting around for stuff to be set up and, and done. Um, it, it's why these films that are uh, one take or one shot are so impressive, because... Yeah. Um, other films take so like hundreds of thousands of takes of each scene and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so the film borrows some footage of the crash of TWA Flight 800 um, as well as the July 17th, 1996 flight uh, that was carrying a high school French club that exploded suddenly and was investigated for a possible deliberate act causing the accident. First a bomb, then a surface-to-air missile. As with the film, it was ultimately decided the crash was a result of a mechanical failure explosion in the central fuel tank. Um, so, I mean, these films do borrow from real life. That's really close to home, though. Yeah. They go into Paris in this film, yeah. and it's based on a French club. Uh-huh. That's, that's and it. It goes on throughout the films. They, they do borrow from real life incidents. Which, if you look at, uh, into it a bit, that's, that's quite shitty and exploitative it's a bit grim isn't it yeah to, to take from real life like that and to um because it's pure entertainment mm. you know you're not looking into these these people die and then people get on with their life you're not looking yeah. into any aspect of it so yeah if it was a film true. based around that and it was it played on the whole based on a true story thing i'm like fair enough you know you're making a film about that incident of course um but thrown into the final destination is a bit ugh. yeah imagine imagine being the relative of someone <laughs> yeah. who died in that crash and you going to watch the uh, the final destination films and being like oh wait this is a little too close to home yeah. like oh iffy the music played throughout the film was John Denver a musician who died in a plane crash <gasps> John That's Denver true, yeah John Denver mum's favorite mum's favorite John Denver <laughs> Um, John Denver is not my mum's favourite, but on uh, in during the film, our most unlikable character randomly picks up a John Denver record in uh, in a house, no one else about, and just says, 
Mum's favourite. <laughs> Mum's favourite, John Denver. <laughs> the original casting choices for Alex and Claire were Toby Maguire and Kirsten Dunst. Of course. Both actors that would go on to star in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. I think it would have worked. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this features the shortest opening disaster of the five films in the series. Uh, the plane crash lasts two minutes. It feels yeah. like it's longer while you're watching it. It's yeah, but also we get a lot of setup beforehand. Yeah. more than we get with any of the other films, where we actually get. And I'm not gonna say character development, <laughs> but we get to know the characters a little bit beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole setup, and their relationships are set up. And the one that does us the closest is five. Because, I mean, even yes. you said, we were like 10, 10 to 15 minutes into it and, enough, and the disaster didn't happen. disaster hadn't happened. Yeah. Whereas with the other films, it tends to be... Um, well, part... Well, yeah. Three's a little longer. Yeah. What I'm really talking about is part four, where <laughs> yeah. it's yeah. just like, boom. It just happens. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> but I'm part... Part two... Quite quick, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, all the individual characters involved are set up. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, the Chinese title for the film translates as The Deaf God Comes. <laughs> Excuse me. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Most characters in this film are named after filmmakers or stars from black and white horror films, uh, which would go on to be an ongoing theme in the franchise, but obviously not just black and white horror films. Um, they all have either first names or surnames related to horror characters or horror filmmakers. Yeah. Um, the plot borrows a number of elements from The Twilight Zone, uh, episode 22. The episode involved a woman who has a dream that she believes to be real and later on she witnesses the things that happen in a dream happening in real life including a plane exploding on takeoff. Oh. So, oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, this is the thing. This is the thing, people. <laughs> a mild rant here is that we obviously watch a lot of these films and this is what annoys me when people refuse to watch older films yeah. and TV because they'll sit here and they'll go, Final Destination, what a wonderful premise, what a re- an absolute genius came up with this, yeah. who would ever think of this plot? And then you read that and you're like, oh shit, that's taken from a Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. And almost to, to the, you know, mm. to the letter taken from a Twilight Zone. So that's what pisses me off when people refuse to watch older film and television because Quentin Tarantino has made a career out of it, yeah. taking stuff from older films and repackaging it. And it's fantastic. Yeah. It's fantastic to watch. And not everyone can do that successfully. But you have to realise where this all comes from. Mm. And and then so we can now go and watch that Twilight Zone episode and be like, oh my God, this is amazing this is genius yeah you know and this person needs a bit of credit for writing and producing that episode too yeah you can always tell the difference uh between fans who have watched old school stuff and fans that just watch the modern stuff Mm. i mean saw is basically theater of blood yeah you know um yeah, there's there's lots of modern things. I mean, Hatchet is Friday the Thirteenth. Exactly. You know. Exactly. Um, and and bringing it back to Tarantino, it's where you could also tell a difference between. And I don't think I may have already said this on. I've either said this to you or said this on the podcast before. With Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is very much a film he's made 
for people who know their references and yeah. no one else. Um, you could tell the difference between people who watched that film who were fans of Italian cinema uh, in the early 70s and 60s and classic Hollywood between and Westerns between people who had no idea what the references were. You like, I mean, through people that I know and, you know, you look at their opinions and it divides and you can tell the difference between those different types of people. Yeah. You've got to know your references um, to enjoy certain things. And, you know, certain things don't demand that. You can watch Final Destination without watching Twilight Zone, but it, it helps. I think it helps. Exactly. And not everyone can do it and make it work. It's taken nothing away from the creators of Final Destination. It's taken nothing away from them because they're obviously inspired by it. Yeah. But they've made it into something yeah. else. They've made it... I'm pretty sure the, the Twilight Zone episode didn't include someone having half their head cut off. Exactly. So making it into something that works for the year 2000 yeah. takes, you know, great intelligence. It, it, it takes great filmmaking. So it's taken nothing away from that. Not everyone can do it. A lot of the times it ends up just being a rip-off. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and doesn't work. Um, but people need to understand where all this comes from. Yeah. And, you know, we're how many years into this now? Mm. Into cinema and literally, you know, hundreds and thousands of years into, you know, culture and, you know, Shakespeare. It still influences people to this day. So you have to realise that no actual thought is necessarily 100% original. Yeah. We're all a product of that culture that we've watched, read, listened to. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all a product of that and it's going to come out in our creative process, which is fine, <clears throat> which is great. Um, but a lot of people, I think, sometimes don't realise the history behind all this. Yes. And they refuse to watch it because it's black and white or it's old or, you know, the they think that the special effects are shoddy or, you know, the dubbing's bad, which, which is true in some cases. But you have to overlook that because what's there is actually a really great film. Yeah. So watch old shit. I know, I was like, rant over. <laughs> um, many of the props in this film contain references to assassinated presidents or almost presidents. Uh, Miss Luton's leaking coffee cup had an inscription for Mount Abram High, and Carter Horton's car had a license plate beginning with the letters RFK. The plane takes off from JFK Airport, JFK also being assassinated. See, I like those little touches. Yeah. They're good. I, I like those clever little touches. Until it, gets to, until it gets to part three, where they're like, oh yeah, here's 9 11. Oh yeah, <laughs> here's a fucking right with in your face. With uh, a big. Like Kirk on his head. <laughs> Considering his extensive knowledge of Death's design and how it works, many Final Destination fans have theorised that William Bloodworth is the human personification of Death, or at least some kind of representat- representative for Death. Uh, William Bloodworth, of course, being played by genre legend Tony Todd, uh, yes. star of Candyman. Uh, Tony Todd himself and Final Destination's producers have denied this being true. So, for the purposes of theory, Bloodworth is a human being with no known connection to death himself, just uh, access to the script, because he tells every character the whole plot. He does. <laughs> okay. I... 
<laughs> Why would you dispel that theory when it actually <laughs> makes it make more sense? <laughs> when you're just saying, no, uh, this Tony Todd character, he's, he's, just, he's just a random guy that knows what's going on and, and is telling everyone to help quicken the pace of the film. Or and like, um... Okay, it would it would make more sense if he was some representative of uh, death. It would actually help the film. <laughs> the film was released before September 11th, 2001. If the film had been released and the timeline of the film was after September 11th, the flight would just have been cancelled. Never would have gone anywhere. No, it's true. Yeah. It's very... It, it's really weird to watch it now. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I didn't, I, I don't think I'd been on a plane before uh, 9-11 happened. I, I hadn't, I don't know why. I actually know for a fact I hadn't. Um, so I only know it the way it is now, yeah. where the checks are really thorough. Um, if it's ever any slight incident, the, the plane gets cancelled, yeah. you know. Um, it's really weird to see it like that where there's like a whole scuffle somebody literally gets up on the plane and says this is about to crash and they still carry on it's mm -hmm. really weird it's weird <laughs> to watch this was actually the first theatrically released teen horror film to not feature a uh corporeal murderer oh okay so what does, it's, what it's basically uh corporeal that's what I have in my trivia. What word's that? Uh, apparently it means... Well, I, essentially it means a slasher villain. Oh, okay. So it's, it's, I, I assume so. Are you going to Google it? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I have to. How are you spelling it? C-O-R-P-O-R-E-A-L. <laughs> Relating to a person's body, especially as opposed to their spirit. So a physical... Yeah. A physical killer. Yeah, without a physical killer. Are you serious? <laughs> Who wrote that? Uh, wonderful world of IMDb. That's word of the day. You use it in a sentence today. Yes. Corporeal. Uh, the only other theatrical release films since then, uh, not including the sequels, were to to kill people without a uh, an actual killer is Ouija, Unfriended, and Truthful Dare. Guess the only film we like out of those three. Or just go and listen to our Blumhouse episodes. Oh, then what was the Blair Witch? I was supposed we didn't know they actually. We died. don't know what happened. In we don't know what in happened. Blair Witch. I suppose that was the point. Okay. Yeah. Um, the original plan was to have death uh, as a much more obvious entity in the film, as it was in Todd's death, uh, where death cleans up after itself. Uh, and but after that death, it was decided to have death simply as accidents. Yeah, it's it's, which makes it really weird. Yeah, you know um, that that death, and it's a cool, it, it's a cool death. It sounds really weird to say that. Um, it was a cool death scene, um, but yeah, the fact that he like wiped up after <laughs> himself. But yeah, <laughs> the uh, the Alka death. Uh, Alka death. Fucking hell. Bloody hell. Uh, the Alka sequence, which follows uh, Terry getting hit by a bus, uh, had to be extended as test audiences were still recovering from the shock. Oh yeah, and and I can understand. I I mean, the first time I watched it, being quite young, um, probably not even old enough to have legally watched the film, I lost my shit when that one <laughs> happened. That's great. That's such a good jump scare. Yeah, it really is. It's one that actually works, and it's been overdone. 
um, to death, but it's such a good jump scare. And a little, I'm, I'm not sure if it is, but a little reference to the original jump scare. Yeah. Um, in the cat people that yeah. we, we've covered on the podcast and that, um, original jump scare being a bus that comes out of nowhere. It doesn't hit her, uh, but a bus that comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Great. Um, body count is five, excluding the 287 passengers of Flight 180. So, this is your film to uh, tell us what happens. It is. So, on May 13th, 2000, high school students, uh, high school student Alex Browning boards Valet Airlines Flight 180. Now, you're going to see a lot of that 180 yes. throughout the franchise. So, remember that. It's a Boeing 747. And he boards with his classmates from their senior trip to Paris's Charles de Gaulle Airport from JFK Airport. Before takeoff, Alex has a premonition that the plane will explode in midair, killing everybody on board. Uh, also, just to add, before takeoff, him and his best friend also have um, a shit together. A shit yeah. to stay. <laughs> Twin shits. Whilst listening to uh, Mum's favourite, John Denver. Yeah. So they're a bit nervous about having to have a shit on the plane because it might stink out the cabin and the ladies don't want... They don't want to be known by the ladies to be the guys that have the stinky no. shit on the plane. So they have synchronised turds in the bathroom <laughs> beforehand. This is the level we're at. So this is post-American Pie. So we're getting that teen um, movie. When the events from his vision began to occur in reality, he panics until a fight breaks out between him and student Carter Horton. As, or as he's known throughout the film, Carter, you dick. <laughs> uh, as a result, both of them were removed from the plane, including Alex's best friend, um, Turd Todd Wagner. Turd Todd. Uh, Carter's girlfriend, Terry Shaney, teacher, Valerie Luton, and students, Billy Hitchcock. See what they did there? And Clear Rivers. What's Clear Rivers a um, reference to? I don't think that's a reference to anything. No? Joan Rivers. There we go. Old school comedian, Joan Rivers. Um, Also, it sounds like through pretty much the whole of the first two films that her name's Claire. It does. It does. It does. Her name is Clear. Clear Rivers. Because I'm assuming her parents were hippies. Um, not going to lie, it's a stupid name. Uh, <laughs> none of the other passengers, except Clear, believe Alex about his vision until the plane explodes on takeoff. Afterwards, the survivors are interrogated by two very poorly acted FBI agents, um, Wine and Shrek. I'm going to call him Wine because I don't know how to pronounce that. Wine and Shrek, who both displayed their suspicions towards Alex. And, and very much so. And, and, and you know, um, it's only this film and the fifth film yeah. that we really see the police really get involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the FBI, actually, really get involved and try and investigate this person who has... Um, and very rightly investigate this person who has told them that a massive disaster is going to happen. They get off. They make themselves safe from this disaster. And the disaster occurs. Yeah. Um, yeah. So very rightly, 
um, these two badly acted FBI agents were involved in the film. A bit awful, awful yeah, acting. Yeah, really, yeah. truly terrible. Yeah. Even for 2000 standard, my lord. Uh, 39 days later, after attending a memorial service for the victims, an unusual chain reaction causes Todd to accidentally hang himself in his shower that night. Um, so essentially what happens is... He has another shit. He has another shit. <laughs> and there's a leak. Um, and and th- this is where death is more of a character than it is in the other. Yeah. Um, because it's made to look like a suicide, mm-hmm. whereas the others are made to look like elaborate accidents. Um, so he slipped on the water. He um, There's some sort of line or something from his shower rail or something. Yeah. Some sort of wire. And it gets wrapped around his neck uh, quite a few times, really tight. And because he slipped, his um, socks are wet mm-hmm. and slippery. So he can't get out and he ends up hanging himself. Um, but yeah, yeah. So twice in this film, and he's the first one to go, apart from the actual accident itself. And we've seen him have a shit twice. Imagine how many more shits he would have had if he was fired. Exactly. He would have been killed off by um, what do you call it? Piles. Code Brown. <laughs> Code Brown. <laughs> uh, when his death was ruled as a suicide, Alex sneaks into the funeral home along with Claire to examine Todd's corpse. When the mortician William Bloodworth reveals that the survivors who escaped from the impending circumstance have disrupted death's plan and is now claiming the lives of those who were meant to die from the accident. So yeah, Tony Todd comes out of nowhere <laughs> and gives them the plot of the film. And it literally says what it was was that Alex wasn't sure and he wanted to go to Todd's body to see if he can have another vision or another feeling. He keeps getting this feeling. Um, that things aren't quite right. Um, Tony Todd comes out and says, um, you're right, guys. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've basically, read the script. this is what you need to know. I've read the script <laughs> and this is death's plan. Um, turns out I've got nothing to do with death. I just, I'm just psychic or, you know, whatever. Uh, it helps. It helps with the pacing of the film, but it makes no fucking sense. Because um, it would take a while for them to really figure it. You'd have to have yeah. a few more deaths uh, for them to really figure it out. So I'm glad Tony Todd was on hand to tell them. Um, Alex and Claire discuss their next move when the rest of the survivors arrive outside the cafe where Terry is run over and killed by a speeding bus on the road. Um, so what it actually is, is that uh, by coincidence, they all seem to be at the same cafe at the same time. Uh, Carter, the dick, um, tries to start another argument. His girlfriend, Terry, uh, she's fed up of it all. She's fed up of thinking about it. Um, and, you know, if they can't get over it, then they might as well just drop dead, to which she's hit by a <laughs> bus. Um, really great jump scare, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, actually really good. Uh, after watching a news report on the cause of the explosion, Alex concludes that death is reclaiming the survivors according to the sequence of their intended demises on the plane. So again, really fortunate for Alex is that the um, TV news station um, shows a plan of the plane for some reason. Um, so he doesn't have to go investigate in, into any of it. <laughs> again, all laid out for him. Uh, nonetheless, he is too late to save Miss Luton, whose house explodes after she is impaled by a falling kitchen knife. Uh, so the setup for that is she, the setup is fucking stupid. Yeah. 
because she pours herself um to like a tea in a mug um she gets shocked by the mug because it's the mug for the high school that she's been working at and she's like ah and just throws the water across the room um she then makes herself pure vodka with ice um which chips the or cracks the mug which ends up dripping into a computer the computer explodes She's calling around. The knife falls on her. Um, it's probably the most elaborate, isn't yeah. it, of of the ones. Um, yeah. The remaining survivors re- uh, reunite, and Alex explains the situation as they drive through town. Carter, who would be next according to Alex's plan, is still enraged over Terry's death and stops his car on a train crossing. The others flee the car, but Carter plans to die on his own terms finally changing his mind at the last minute when his seatbelt jams. Alex saves him just before the car is smashed by an oncoming train, but it flings shrapnel from the wreckage into the air, decapitating Billy. Alex surmises that because he intervened in Carter's death, death skipped to the next person in the original sequence. The next day, while hiding out in a fortified cabin, Alex recalls changing seats in his premonition, but he did not do so in reality and realises that Claire is actually next. He rushes to her house to save her while being pursued by the two FBI agents. Alex finds Claire, who is trapped inside her car, surrounded by loose electrical cables that ignite a gasoline leak around her. He grabs the cable, allowing her to escape from the car just before it explodes. Six months later, Alex, Claire and Carter the Dick travel to Paris to celebrate their survival. While discussing their ordeal, Alex reveals that Death never skipped him after he saved Claire. Fearing that their struggle is unfinished, Alex retreats when a bus hurls parking signage towards a neon sign which descends towards him. Carter pushes Alex out of the way at the last second, but the sign swings back towards the former and kills him, leaving Death's plan to resume action. So yeah, that's Final Destination. That's Final Destination. Really simple premise. Expertly done, really. Yeah, it's it's yeah. fucking dumb. It really it is. is. And, and this time, you know, it's a lot more laughable. It's like you said, if you watch it as a comedy, it's more enjoyable. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch it as a comedy and it's way more enjoyable. A dark comedy, but, you know, a comedy nonetheless. Um, so on to our categories for this one. Most annoying character we have, Teacher Val Luton. Because she is a fucking nightmare. Like, from the moment... I mean, at first, I thought she was going to be a bit of a slay queen, but then yeah. after she gets off that plane, oh my god, she's just... Whenever Alex goes anywhere near her, she's like, ah, get away from me! She is. She's a blubbering wreck. Oh, um, she does. She's scared of mugs for some reason. <laughs> like, well, I don't understand that part of it. It's so, so funny. If you look at it as a comedy, it's hilarious. Um, but she's just... She could have been something else, and she was just a whimpering wreck who didn't re- who didn't believe Alex. No. Um, and was actually a, really a bitch to him. Now, Carter was a dick, and he was a dick throughout the film. Mm. Um, but she, you know, she kind of owed Alex at least not to uh, be disgusted every time she looked at him. Yeah. Um, there's survivor's guilt, and there's just being a, a fucking wet blanket yeah yeah uh whereas our most likable character 
Here's a push. Uh, was Clear Rivers. Yes, Clear Rivers. Clear Rivers. We know as a bookworm. Um, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> she got off to a rocky start because she was reading Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer, uh, which makes her, you know, uh, the cool bookish girl um, who's surprisingly attractive. You know, mm. for 2000, um, she was very surprisingly attractive, even though she was clever. Um, you don't usually get the two. Uh, but she was on the escalator reading, which is quite dangerous. Um, even even before, you know, death coming after her, it's still quite <laughs> dangerous. So I wasn't sure, but she, she showed herself to be a good final girl. You yeah. know, she was all right. Her art shit. It's awful. <laughs> um, but props to her. Yeah. Um, and best death is, of course, the bus death. Yeah. Of Terry. Yeah. Uh, it, it is just out of nowhere. And, and that is why it works. And the fact that she says, you know, you could all just drop dead before it happens just adds to it. It, it really is a really great scene. Yeah. It, it's, it's a good jump scare, but it's also funny. Um, I was kind of, I wasn't really expecting her to die at that point. I, I don't I know. know why, because we hadn't got anything from, she's probably the least developed character. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking, oh, maybe we'll get more from her, yeah. but no, just out of nowhere. And, and that's slam. the thing, the rest of the franchise spends so long building up all the deaths and, and because this one just happens, is why it's so effective. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I suppose, yeah, all we'd had before that is these elaborate, elaborate setups. Yeah. Um, and this one wasn't. So yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, you're right there. So moving on... Three years later, we have Final Destination 2 in 2003. Uh, directed by David R. Ellis, who also directed Homeward Bound 2, Lost in San Francisco. Nice. I Sal- loved Homeward Bound when I was younger. Salula, uh, which... Uh, the convincing of Yeah, I, I love that film. Well, nice. I loved with a D. I loved that film. <laughs> I haven't watched it in a long time, but I used to, I used to think that was a great film. Uh, Snakes on a Plane, nice. Shark Night 3D, <laughs> nice, and sh- really shocking, actually, the Final Destination, the worst film in the franchise. And I say shocking because Final Destination 2 is one of the best in the franchise. Yeah, yeah. I would say that it's on par with the first, and in some aspects, better than the mm. first. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was made on a budget of $26 million. And made just under ninety-one million dollars uh, worldwide. So not as much as the first film, but still a good. Yeah, it was the profit. least successful of the franchise. Mm. The the uh, the five films, but still, you know, a mild success. Yeah. It didn't lose many. No. So, uh, so for the opening disaster, real logs were tested, uh, but it didn't bounce enough. <laughs> so in the films, the logs are CGI, and it's only it's one of the small number of uh, CGI elements used within this film. A lot of it is all practical and it really works really well. Yeah, it's the better for it. The accident on the highway was based on the 125 car pileup of Interstate 75 in Ringgold, Georgia on March 14th, 2002. So another one based on a real-life incident. Wow, I'm really close in timings. The Stony Brook Institute sanatorium uh, that clear places itself in is the same sanatorium used in the opening of Halloween Resurrection. Ooh, nice. A film you'll be hearing us discuss in October. 
Uh, a pigeon breaks through the window and gets inside the waiting room in the dentist's office. According to some superstitions, a bird being inside a building means that someone in the building will die. Oh. Uh, apparently that's a thing. You mean a bird that lives outside? Yeah. Not like... Yeah, no, not If a you bite bird. a budgie, you're going to die. <laughs> no. Uh, the disaster at the beginning has the exception of being the only one in the series which the death order was reversed. Since death did it to, to start its list anew, due to a remaining survivor of Flight 180 still being alive. So, yeah, the deaths happen in reverse in this film rather than going straight forward like in the first film. Uh, originally, Devin Sauer was set to reprise his role of Alex in this film, but a dispute concerning his contract with New Line Cinema could not be settled. So in this film, it is implied by a newspaper clipping that his character was killed by a falling brick to the head. <laughs> really, really lazy way to write his character out right Could there. you imagine? Could you imagine? Like, in hindsight now, he must be kicking himself to be like... Oh, yeah. I'm assuming, because the majority of, like, contract disputes are over money. Yeah. And I'm thinking, like... Number one, I don't know. I don't know what other films he's been in for me to really judge. But surely this is his claim to fame. Yeah. And he really should have been in the sequel. Yeah. I mean, sequels, you know. He, well, yeah. He, he could have easily been a long run. But they could have made it around him, I suppose. I mean, mm. he was perfectly likeable in the first film. Yeah. Not, you know. The, the, the These films aren't about the characters. No. So it, it's not... People aren't there seeing... They don't go to these films to see these characters again. So if if you're given the offer, you might as well be in the sequel, like Ali Lata did. The character of Tim was supposed to be nine and then 13, but New Line Cinema decided it wasn't okay to kill off a little kid, so they eventually settled on the age of 15. Yes, and didn't change his character. No. <laughs> um, in the special feature, Choose Their Fate on the DVD for Final Destination 3... A newspaper article reveals that both Kimberly and Thomas, the lead characters, were killed in a wood chipper accident. <laughs> Never Which would have been great to see. What? Did we watch a film with a wood chipper accident? Yeah. Uh, Deadpool 2. Was it Deadpool 2? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, it also happens in Tucker and Dale. Um... Fuck, what's that film called? Tucker and Dale vs. Evil, I think it's called. Yeah. Um, but you haven't seen that, but it is a good film. Yeah. Uh, it was originally going to be... Revi- oh, my God. Silent Night, Deadly Night remake. That's the one. Yeah. Thank you. It was originally going to be revealed that Alex had been killed by a flesh-eating virus. What does... Oh, Why? Why? <laughs> Why would Jeff do that? Surely that's not as clear-cut and quick as the rest no. of... No. Okay. And uh, the body count, not including the opening disaster, is 12 in this one. So... Exactly one year after the explosion of Flight 180, college student Kimberly is heading to Daytona Beach, Florida for spring break with her really unlikable friends, Shayna, Dano, and Frankie. Whilst waiting... What did you call her? Shayna. Oh, we said China. <laughs> um, we said China like Donald Trump says China. And whilst waiting on the entrance ramp to Route 23, she has a premonition of a deadly pileup caused by a logging truck. Uh, in one of the most effective opening disasters of 
the film of the franchise. Yeah, I'd say this is my favorite overall. Um, she stalls her car on the entrance ramp, preventing several people from entering the highway, including lottery winner Evan Lewis, mother Nora Carpenter, and her fifteen-year-old son Tim, businesswoman Kat Jennings, stoner Rory How do we Peters. Know she's a businesswoman? Uh, because she's wearing a strong business attire. And she's got she Christina smokes. Ritchie hair. And she's got Christina. She's constantly smoking and looking stressed on a mobile phone. <laughs> Stoner Rory Peters, pregnant Isabella Hudson, high school teacher Eugene Dix. Yes, that is a surname. And Deputy Marshal Thomas Burke. Whilst Burke questions Kimberly, the pileup occurs, and thankfully her annoying friends are all killed in the meantime. Um, but Burke saves Kimberly at the last second. After the survivors are questioned at the police station, Evan is fatally impaled by a fire escape ladder whilst attempting to escape from a fire in his apartment. A, a, a death scene with a lot of really great build-up. Yeah, and some good comedy as well. Yeah. Um, so whilst his arm's trapped somewhere and his apartment's on fire, he's getting all these calls from random women saying, <laughs> Oh, I know we haven't spoken in a while. I'm sorry. I've been meaning to call you back. How's that lottery win doing for you? <laughs> and I, I, when I first watched this, it genuinely shocked me. I didn't see it coming the way he actually died in the end. It's yeah, really it's, random. It kind of starts off that um, red herring yeah. death. Um, so, so in the first film, you had elaborate deaths. But this one is is essentially a red herring, and I don't know if it, I'm assuming they would describe it as death playing games. Yeah. Before actually going in for the kill, but really it's just to make them more entertaining for a, a cinema audience. Um, but this one is like, how's he gonna go? You know, is he his arms trapped? He's gonna set a fire. He's he's you know, um, all this sharp cutlery around all mm. this. And then it ends up just being him slipping on some pasta and uh, a ladder going into his eye. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's funny. It's funny. Uh, aware of Death's presence, Kimberly seeks help from Clear Rivers, the last survivor of Flight 180, who committed herself to a psychiatric ward for protection after Alex Brownham was killed by a fallen brick. <laughs> seeks help from Clear Rivers. <laughs> When Kimberly informs Claire that Evan was the first of the highway survivors to die, unlike in her premonition, Claire realises that the survivors are dying in reverse order. Meanwhile, um, adult child Tim is crushed by a window pane whilst leaving the dentist with his mother. And honestly, this arsehole, he deserved to die, fucking chasing <laughs> pigeons. Like, seriously. I mean, the whole dentist thing leading up to it, that gave me a lot of anxiety because I fucking hate the dentist. And it that's a really good setup because, again, so many red herrings. He could have easily died in the dentist. Yeah. Um, it's also... It's really weird, though, because the dude playing him looks older than 50. Yeah. He's meant to be 15. Yeah. He, ain't older than, he looks older than 15. But the character's like... He's written as between 9 and 13. Yeah. So when this guy, who looks like a grown-ass adult, comes running out to scare some pigeons, mm -hmm. you just be like, oh, mate, grow up. Yeah. <laughs> and he gets splattered yeah. like, ah, you deserve that. <laughs> Meanwhile, Tim... Um, no, that, we've had that part. I need to scroll down on my, uh, <laughs> on my notes. Uh, Claire decides to help and introduces Kimberly and Burke to William Bloodworth, who tells them the plot of the film. And that only new life can defeat death. 
<laughs> yeah. The, the problem is, Claire Rivers has already told the plot of the film. Yeah. So when Tony Todd appears, he has to give him a bit more he has to give him a information. Plot twist. <laughs> he has to give him a plot twist. <laughs> Believing that the birth of Isabella's baby would foil Death's plan, Burke sends fellow Marshal Steve Adams to take her into custody. Uh, whilst he gains the other survivors, uh, gathers the other survivors in his apartment and explains Death's plan to them. When Nora attempts to leave via an elevator, a chain of accidents results in her head becoming trapped in the doors and she is decapitated. And it's such a shame because Nora is more likeable than her son. Um, and she is one of, the, one of the more likeable characters in the film in general. And uh, it's just a really mean-spirited death scene. It is. It <laughs> and, is. And it's kind of weird because I've always, every time I've watched it, I've always thought it's because of the guy in the lift. I don't know if it is, but he there's a real creep in the lift with her who has like loads of hooks and parts of mannequins in her basket and sniffs her hair. Sniffs her hair. He's a real creep. My my thing is, it's um, I used to be addicted to a website when I was younger called Snopes.com. Okay. And all it, it sort of did was um, try and disperse or um, accredit urban legends and urban myths mm -hmm. and the, one of the big ones was can you get your head trapped in an elevator and get decapitated and it turned out it was actually true and actually happened to mm -hmm. someone so I think I think sometimes deaths like that in films because that one really creeped me out yeah I think it's because I'm associating uh, associating it with the scary urban legend that mm. I used to always read when I was younger yeah the survivors take Cat's uh, SUV to track down Isabella, who has gone into labour, pr prompting Adams to rush her into hospital. Along the way, the survivors realise uh, that the demises of the Flight 180 survivors affected all of their lives, even before the highway pileup, by saving them from prior deaths, which explains why death is working backwards this time. And I think that's a really good connection to the first film, and really ties up the story really well. Because, um, yeah, these characters were also around at these times, apparently. It's going backwards, reversing it, and just tying things up. Yeah, and I, it's it's a really interesting concept. Um, I think if the film does one thing wrong, is that it does overcomplicate things mm. at points. You know, the premise of the first film was very simple, whereas I find with this one it overcomplicates it just a little bit. Um, it's interesting, it's an interesting thing, and it's a bit like, ah, oh, little throwback to the first film. I just wonder how big this place is for all these people <laughs> to have died or were meant to have died. It's like, oh my lord, it's like midsummer. I think, it? I think with, with that, um, with that plot point and with the way the plot goes in five, it kind of makes one, two, and five work as a trilogy. Uh, and then three and four, you just don't need to watch. <laughs> yeah. uh, the SUV then suffers a blowout, causing them to swerve into a stack of PVC pipes in a farm that penetrates the car and injures Eugene. Uh, rescue workers arrive and assist the farm owners, the Gibbons family, um, with rescuing the others whilst Eugene is hospitalised. Using the Jaws of Life... Do you know what the Jaws of Life is? Um, is it, it's what the, um, firemen use to prise open Yeah, I didn't know stuff. that before. I didn't think Jaws of Life. Watching the film. I, I've never heard to it referred to as that. Yeah. Um, Cat's rescuer accidentally activates her hair bag 
and causes her airbag. Does that say airbag? Airbag causing her head to be impaled on a pipe protruding from her. Uh, airbag. <laughs> but it, this again, this is such a mean spirited scene because it's just <laughs> it was so random. It's great. It, it's uh, I know it's it's what the first two films do is is quite well is that you have these over not overcomplicated we have these complicated setups um but it's actually sometimes the simple ones that they're most effective yeah just like out of nowhere you know um it's great yeah it works it works really well and i, I did like that though uh, so her cigarette that she was smoking before that point, because she's always smoking, falls onto a gasoline leak from a news van that explodes, launching a barbed wire fence into the air that dismembers Rory. Yeah, that that and um, that's a really cool image of him yeah. being sliced into pieces, like a cake room, isn't yeah. it? Um, and that, that was mainly practical effects yeah. too. Guided by a vision of a doctor named Kalajian... Uh, who Kimberly believes with will uh, will euthanize Isabella. Kimberly, Claire, and Burke rush to a hospital to save her, only to find Isabella and her baby unharmed. However, an explosion from an oxygen leak uh, in Eugene's ward kills both Claire and Eugene. Uh, Kimberly realizes that Isabella was never meant to die at all, reducing that uh, reducing deducing that her visions of Isabella were actually of herself. Um. Yeah, Eugene's death and Claire's death, again, it, you feel something because these characters are likeable in this film. Yeah, and, and we'd have the association with Claire from the first film as well. Yeah. So we were really, we were all rooting for her. Um, and then she went and died on us. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, Kimberly drives into a lake to drown herself, but is defibrillated by, uh, to, and revived by Dr. Collagium, creating new life as predicted by the biggest helping hand in the franchise, Tony Todd. Yeah. Later, Kimberly and Burke have a picnic with the Gibbons family, who own the farm where all the shit went down earlier in the film. Uh, and, and Kimberly's, really and Kimberly's father's that. there. As, Kimberly's dad's there as well, for absolutely no reason. Really sure. It's a great ending, but it doesn't make any sense. Why is it all having support? I, I always remember yeah. with this ending, um, when I was in primary school... Um, a bunch of kids at school and went to see. Uh, I think it was like, it, depending on when it's released, it might have been Attack of the Clones. Um, if this was early in two thousand and three, uh, depending on how long Attack of the Clones was at cinema for. But they went to see a kids' film and they snuck in and they only saw this ending and it was the biggest thing going around school. Like, oh my god! You know what happens at the end of Final Destination two, and rightfully so because this ending is fucking great. <laughs> They explained that their son Brian was nearly hit by a news fan after Rory saved him earlier. And as a result, they witnessed Brian <laughs> suddenly die in an explosion caused by a malfunctioning barbecue grill and his arm arrives on the table. <laughs> and that's the end of the film. Yeah, it is a great end. I, it's just, I just don't understand I, no, no, why no, they're the be characters. They don't need to be there. <laughs> <laughs> what about Isabella and a baby, you know? Where the fuck was she? Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> Well, dude, she was too busy looking after her baby. I suppose the thing is, well, that is about... It's funny, because at the end, it was like... Um, she had no idea who these people were. They hadn't contacted her before all of no. this. And it turns out she actually didn't have anything to do with it. No. She was just like... She 
Should have just gone about her time and had her baby. <laughs> had nothing to do with her. So this idea that um, new life is um, is a weird one. Is, is it not really addressed in the rest of the series? No, it? no. But it is a common thing. It was meant to for superstitious be people, in the it? first film. Mm. So uh, Claire was meant to have um, the dude's baby. Yeah. In the first, I can't remember his Alex name. Alex's baby. Alex. Alex's baby, and that was meant to save it. And it was all filmed and everything, mm. but they, they didn't seem to like it. The, uh, I think Bob Shea didn't like it. Or, no, or test someone, audiences didn't like it. Test audiences either. didn't like it, so they went with the... So they brought that back in into this... Which is an interesting idea. Um, I mean, they were very fortunate they already had a pregnant woman <laughs> involved, or seemingly not involved by the end. But then it's like she died for a minute and then came back. Yeah. And I thought that was a bit weird. But it's a great sequel, really. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. It, it ups the ante on a lot of things, um, doesn't it? Yeah. Which which all sequels essentially do in the horror genre. Yeah, and actually gives us char- characters to care about. Yes, actual character development. But that doesn't stop us from having our most annoying character, who in this film is Rory, the stoner. And it was a He's push. not just a stoner, though, is he? He's, he's a stoner. He, I think he snorts cocaine. Yeah, he's... He's, he's obnoxious. He tells uh, Kimberly to hide his porn collection. He does. Um, so, so it doesn't he does. upset his mum. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, when porn collections were a thing. Uh, yeah, it, it was a push, because he wasn't completely no. unlikable. Um, but he was probably the most obnoxious out of all the characters. A most likable character really could have gone to anyone, but we are going to say Kimberly, uh, the lead character. Um, I do prefer it when there's uh, a female character who's in charge of these films. Yes. Um, I mean, saying that, you know, part five is my favourite out of the franchise, but it, I think it does work here. It really does. Uh, and it's one of the only things that works really about part three as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think... I don't know, we could do 20 podcast episodes on why women in horror, um, why women in horror, just why women in horror. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but about women in horror and uh, characters and such. But I, I think we just have an affinity for female characters that fight back in these films. Um, and especially when they're likeable, it just adds to it. And yeah, it's good. And the best death scene, of course, goes to Nora's lift decapitation. Yes. The most grisly death in the film. It is, yeah. It's the one that makes you feel the most, I think. Yeah. It's not just a throwaway. Yeah, because, again, you know, everyone gets a bit of character development in this film. You know she's lost her husband prior to the film, and then she loses her son, and then a creep sniffs her hair and she loses her head. Well, yeah, and she she was pretty much, the, oh, I don't care anymore, I've yeah. lost everything dear to me. But as it's happening, she sort of realises, actually, I don't want to die, and mm. says it as well, uh, which which makes it a bit sad, because she then loses her head. Yeah. <laughs> so now we are on to... Final Destination 3, released in 2006. Again, three years after uh, Final Destination 2. There seemed to be a bit of a theme going on until after the fourth film. Uh, this One thing that the Final Destination franchise doesn't do is the... Um, like It's not tagline. What's it called? 
like Dream Warriors, Dream Master. Yeah. The yeah. Subtitles, and subtitles. Subtitles until it gets to uh, the final destination. Yeah, the final destination, which isn't really, you know. Technically, okay, we'll get to that soon, but technically it is. Oh, okay. Um, but it doesn't do it. Um, what? <laughs> this is one for the end of the episode, but I'm putting it out there. What do you think the subtitle should be for the films? Um, Just think about it. Think about it. For the end. Oh, for the end. For the end. For the end. I'll give you time. No, no, no. You're not on the spot. Are we going to forget about it? Probably, probably. (laughs) If anyone listening, if you can think of any, then that would be quite good. Um, Death takes a ride. (laughs) Death takes a ride. (laughs) For this. That's an alright one. (laughs) Death takes a road trip for part two. (laughs) Uh, the Death the... takes a road trip. Oh, and then the on a road trip. This and... is why I didn't want to put you on the spot. I, I want some good ones. That's the best the I end. can think of. <laughs> Final Destination Zero instead of five. Yeah. Anyway. Um, directed by... I distinctly asked you at the end. <laughs> directed again by James Wong, uh, Final Destination 3, uh, on a budget of $25 million, and it made just under $119 million worldwide. Because this film was hot shit when it was released. Yeah, yeah, this, it really was actually. Because, uh, this, yeah. When I referred to gimmicks earlier, it's specifically this one. This is the one everyone knows because of the roller coaster scene at the beginning. Yes, yeah, um, absolutely. This is the one that I'd heard of after the first one. Um, this is the one people were talking about. I saw it all on the internet and such. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a common fear, you know. It, I, I used to be really scared of roller coasters. And, and I'd be lying if I said I didn't go on a roller coaster without thinking about this film every single time. Um, but you know, it is a common one. And weirdly enough, I don't think this one took anything from an incident that happened prior to it. But we did have an incident here in the UK that wasn't too dissimilar no I years mean, later yeah in this sort of stuff's happened all over the world you yeah. know um but i mean like as far as most well known the one in yeah. towers was definitely the yeah, more of course yeah that um, poor, poor girl did she lose a leg yeah she did yeah yeah, yeah. um but yeah no it's it is and it makes for a really interesting poster as well and it, it, it's it's a flashy premise, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's one that gets people interested. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Shame about the rest of the film. Um, <laughs> the cast members on the roller coaster had to ride the roller coaster 26 times on the same night in order to shoot the film's main premonition scene. I, I don't know. <laughs> Would you enjoy that? Or um, I suppose you'd get fed up after a while. Yeah, 26 times is a bit much. Yeah, a little much. The ending was reshot reportedly because of unfavourable reactions at preview screenings. And uh, it's also happened with the previous two films as well. Yeah, I think they struggle for an ending. Yeah. Um, and the ending to this one's a good one. Yeah, it, it is. It, it's, it's decent. Uh, I suppose if you had characters running throughout the films it would make it a little easier to yeah. play into a sequel but essentially you know you know these characters ain't coming back for part four mm. so it, it's you know you, you kind of just have to um roll with it and yeah um although this is the first one where everyone is killed yeah 
Um, the first yeah, two still had true. surviving characters. Yeah, and it's not just a brick to the head at the end no. either. Or the, a wood chipper incident. The scene taking place in the tannin booth was a closed set. Only the camera operators were in the same room uh, with the actresses and black curtains were draped to keep onlookers out, which is nice to hear. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I do, sometimes I do think, I, I suppose the idea is that they're in a state of undress for a very long time. Mm. Um, for what is just a few minutes on film. Yeah. So I understand that. But sometimes it's a bit like, well, you know, millions of people are going to see your breasts on camera anyway. I don't, I don't know. I suppose it's a bit... It's it's a lot different to actually being in real life. In though, real life, I suppose. And, you know... And plus, the theatrical version doesn't quite show as much as uh, the other version of this film. Um, which brings me on to my next bit of trivia. Uh, this is one of the few films that the director and DVD team collaborated uh, from the film's inception to its DVD release. The film was shot with the DVD interactive features in mind, so many scenes were filmed several times with varying outcomes. Uh, yes, this has Choose Your Death uh, on the DVD release. Not the Blu-ray release, but the DVD release. And again, when this was first released, oh my God, I used to love it. it you... Picked certain things like um, when the character flips a coin, has to pick head or, heads or tails. Uh, the tanning bed scene, you can decide how much they turn the temperature up to, and things like that. And depending on what you pick, you you could get an alternative scene. Um, the tanning bed scene in particular, I think if I remember right, you actually see full frontal nudity um, oh. in that scene. Uh, it's a lot more nasty in the death scene. Um, things like the the first the premonition it's a bit creepy yeah the the premonition scene at the beginning um they get off the roller coaster and it shows you the end credits and you have to start the film again oh, gee, really? um, yeah things like that it's it it, it works it, it's really really fun uh, makes it a more fun experience than just watching the film uh, like the previous films in the series, the post-disaster deaths are foreshadowed in the opening credits. Are they? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh, in Japan, now this is uh, a subtitle for you. In Japan, the film is renamed Final Dead Coaster. Nice. <laughs> and the t- Final Dead Coaster. The title was previously known as Cheating Death, Final Destination 3. And Final Destination 3D. 3D was considered for the film, but it was deemed too expensive and complicated. Yeah. I think this one probably would have worked better in 3D. Oh, yeah, it would have been. would have been good in 3D. Yeah. Now, the first of three Ashley Tisdale facts over the next coming films. Nice. All around the same thing. Ashley Tisdale, star of High School Musical, auditioned for the role of Erin, but lost. Erin being the goth girlfriend. Um, Vanessa Hudgens, also of High School Musical fame, auditioned for the role of Julie, uh, married us before and said sister in this film, but also lost. Oh. It's 2006. High School Musical doing a big deal then. You'd think they'd want to play on that a bit. This would have been before. I suppose if, if this came out in 2006. Yeah. High School Musical came out in 2006 as well. Yeah. So they probably lost out on this film, but then got... High School Musical. Yeah. So it actually probably worked out better for them that yeah. way around. Uh, originally, the character Frankie Cheeks was not going to die. Imagine that. Fucking what? hell. What? 
Rather than being fatally struck from the back of the head by a spinning engine propeller, as shown in the final film, he looks at his rearview mirrors and narrowly escapes the supposed death himself with only a broken neck. Well, yeah, which happens on the uh, choose your death, uh, choose your fate or whatever. Uh, he is then later arrested by police and is charged for indecent exposure due to the police scene's video camera having footage of revealing girls on that. Oh. So, I mean, he gets justice. Yeah. Um, just not death. Um, we have a body count here of 10, not including the opening disaster. So, you have the synopsis for this one? I do. High school student Wendy Christensen visits an amusement park in Pennsylvania with her boring boyfriend Jason Wise, <laughs> her boring best friend Carrie Dreyer, and Carrie's weirdo boyfriend Kevin Fisher. Yeah, and her boyfriend and Kevin look the exact same. It's difficult. Um, yeah, and Kevin is an upskirter. Yeah. Um, which people, because it's 2006, people play off for laughs. Um, like the girlfriend did not have an issue with him no. doing that. And even Wendy's like, um, you know. Yeah, so, oh, we don't want her camel toe in a year, but. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People don't want to see Stacey's camel toe. Yeah, it's true. Um, so, so uh, they visit an amusement park uh, with their classmates to celebrate their graduation from high school. As they board the Devil's Flight roller coaster, brilliantly um, narrated by <laughs> Tony Todd, um, his little cameo in this film. He's not physically in it. He's um the roller coaster, and also uh, you can have a premonition, and then all your friends are gonna die after. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, Wendy has to do it by herself in this one. You know, props to Wendy. She ain't got yeah. a Tony Todd coming out of nowhere. She hasn't got clear rivers, uh, making everything clear. Uh, <laughs> she's doing it on her own. Um, yeah, Wendy has a premonition that the hydraulics that secure the seat belts and coaster cars will fail during the ride, killing everyone on board. She convinces nine people, including Kevin, best friends Ashley Freund and Ashlyn Halperin, alumnus Frankie Cheeks and af athlete Louis Romero, see what they did there, yes. and goth couple Ian McKinley and Erin Ulmer not to ride the roller coaster. But that's not actually true. Um, what happens is that she has the premonition and they all get chucked off. Yeah. Um... So they don't ride the roller coaster, uh, but Jason and Carrie are left on there. They're not allowed to leave the ride in what is a really disgraceful health and safety. Yeah. Like, um, because Jason's on there, like, screaming that he wants to get off as well to look after his girlfriend. Um, and they, they're like, no, you're stuck on here now. You go. You go on the ride. And uh, her premonition comes true and everyone, uh, there was only like, there weren't that many people on no, there, was there? No. Um, but they're killed in the derailment. Um, so first of all, best friend and boyfriend killed straight away. Yep. Um, and she's just left with Carrie's weirdo boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Um, several weeks later, Kevin tells Wendy about the explosion of Flight 180 and the survivor's subsequent deaths. So technically, he figures it out. Yeah, I suppose so. He's... He brings it to her attention. Yeah. She yeah. does what she will with it. <laughs> Believing they may be in a similar situation, 
At a tanning salon, Ashley and Ashlyn die after being trapped in malfunctioning tanning beds and burning alive. Whilst listening to... Uh, roller coaster of love, is it? Yeah. Roller coaster of love. <laughs> um, see, if you look at these films as comedies, it works a bit better. Um, so their death is completely their own fault. <laughs> completely. Um, they are way too impatient. They turn the temperature up way too high. Uh, they start fiddling around with stuff, don't they? Yeah. Um, trying to get the best tan possible. They take drinks in there when they're not meant to take drinks in there. So this is actually all on them. Yeah. Um, but it's a great death scene um, where they're trapped. This is what... This is... Oh, I, no. We'll, we'll wait. We'll yeah, wait. no spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> you know what happens, but <laughs> Yeah. we're going to detail. We're going to detail yeah. a little bit. <laughs> uh, now convinced that death is stalking them... Wendy and Kevin set out to save the remaining survivors using omens hidden in photographs of the survivors that Wendy took on the night of the roller coaster well, Literally crash. omens. Literally <laughs> omens. They're literally taken right from the plot of the omen. <laughs> yeah, literally. Um, so, yeah. And oh, we didn't mention it in the first episode. So, we, we, we're there talking about the Twilight Zone. But this is very omen, much this film, though. Yeah. This, this film in particular. This film in particular. But the omen must have been a... Um, influence as well. Yeah, this was released the same year as the Omen remake. Oh, okay. I mean the original Omen of Gregory Peck. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, it was very much, it must have been riding high off that as well. Yeah. Same year, you know, they kept that in the remake. Yes, yeah, it's true. Uh, When Wendy and Kevin pull into a drive-thru restaurant and observe Frankie's photo, a runaway semi-trailer truck forces them to escape Kevin's car before it collides. The collision causes a motor to fly out of Kevin's car and kills Frankie by slicing his skull. Thank God. Thank God. Yeah, but he d- he's just... So, like, the twist is that it was Frankie all along in the front car. Mm. So he didn't really get an elaborate... The elaborate setup was all with them. And Frankie's just there minding his own business <laughs> and just smack right in the back. I think if that scene was played from Frankie's perspective and then the twist would have been them in the back. Yeah. I don't know if that would have worked a little better. Um, but yeah, it's fine. Uh, the next day, Wendy and Kevin fail to save Lewis, whose head is crushed by two <laughs> weights from a Bowflex machine at the school gym. In the most chaotic scene in cinematic history. <laughs> yeah. Like, everyone's in a gym just screaming at each other. Screaming at each other. Like, these obviously high testosterone males in a gym... Um, they're football players, so, you know, there's the stereotype there. I just <laughs> scream at each other about how another team sucks and they rule. And then Lewis is there, uh, ah, deaf can't get me, I'm invincible, deaf can't get me, ah, and then smash. <laughs> and uh, it's disappointing, this kill, because um, they CGI blood yeah. over it, and it's just, it, I, I don't know, it just looks like... Um, MSN paint, uh, MSN, uh, Microsoft Paint yeah. or something. It's just like a blob of red. Um, yeah, really unfortunate. They find Ian and Erin working at a hardware store where a chain reaction from a runaway forklift allows Wendy to save Ian from his death. However, death skips to Erin, 
who falls on a nail gun that shoots repeatedly through her head. That's a good scene. <laughs> the that's... longest nails in oh, the Oh, yeah, the nails kind of go right through her head. <laughs> but it's a, great, it's a great scene. Yeah. It is a great death scene. Uh, while identifying the last two survivors from the photographs, whose faces are obscured, Wendy realises they are that they are her sister Julie and one of her friends, prompting Wendy and Kevin to rush to the local tricentennial fair to save them. Kevin saves Julie from being impaled in a harrow, but an airborne flagpole fatally impales Julie's friend, who actually gets a name, Perry <laughs> Malinowski, wow. moments later. Um, yeah, she didn't say this the only no. time she appears. It's just to get impaled. Um, it, it's quite a good scene. It's quite mm. an elaborate setup, isn't it? Because yeah. you have um, you have Julie being dragged along by this runaway horse, uh, with it tied around her neck, mm. uh, and everything. And then again, out of nowhere, is this this impalement. Yeah. Um, after Wendy saves Kevin from an exploding propane canister. The trio is confronted by a grief-stricken Ian, who blames Wendy for Erin's death. Before Ian can take revenge, however, an unstable cart of firework cannons launches fireworks into a cherry picker that falls and crushes him. So that was meant to be the original ending, and yeah. it, the film just ended there, and that was it. I think that's quite abrupt, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is quite And abrupt. I don't think it's what people expect from Final Destination. No. Um, you know, you have to be in keeping with the franchise. Yeah. So what we get is five months later, Wendy experiences more omens while riding on a subway train with her roommate Laura and her friend Sean. As Wendy is about to disembark, she suddenly reunites with Julie and Kevin, who had also boarded the train. Wendy receives another premonition that the train will crash, killing everyone on board. Panicked, the remaining survivors attempt to stop the train and is about to crash, leaving their fates unknown. Well... I mean, the well, premonition. The, the dead, the yeah, dead. <laughs> the premonition just comes true. It's just thankfully we don't get exactly the same scene twice in a row. Yeah, I, um, I think it's it's a it's a really good ending. I mean, I used to have a really bad fear of trains up until like I don't know, like twenty twelve or whatever. Um, but I used to have a really bad fear of trains, and that ending really used to get me. But um, yeah, the opening and the ending are the best parts of the film. Um, yeah, a lot of what happens in between is laughable at best. Um, the characters are just really, really insufferable. Yeah, and it does. So in the first two films, you have that death scene that comes out of nowhere that that doesn't have that elaborate setup. Yeah, or, or at least the elaborate setup seems to be going one way, and then suddenly, bam. Yeah, you know. Um, in this one, you have that. Is it twice? Is it twice it happens? So it happens with the Nails girl, mm. where the elaborate setup is yeah. for someone else, and then out of nowhere it gets her. Yeah, and then there's Frankie's death. And then you have Frankie's death, which the elaborate setup seems to be somewhere mm. else, and then bam, it's him. And then you get um, Julie's friend. Yeah. With the elaborate setup of yeah. Julie, and I know she's saved, and that's what changes it, but then you get that jump scare. Um, death as well mm. and it just it kind of overdoes it whereas the, the the in the first two films they really do come out of nowhere because all the other deaths were so elaborate yeah. whereas in this it's you're kind of expecting it yeah by the end yeah. you know this is really just mindless throwaway 
fun. Yeah. Because it is, it is fun to watch, it, but it's, it's, it's not, on paper, it's not a good film. No. Uh, but it, it is just fun to watch. Yeah. The most annoying character, we've managed to narrow it down to two for this one. Because, really, the, these two were the most obnoxious and it's difficult to put between the two of them. So we're going with Frankie Cheeks and Ian McKinley. Yes. Frankie Cheeks is just a fucking piece of shit. He is so... Ugh. He's just really pervy and grimy. He's just like, oh my God, just leave those women alone. Just leave them alone. It's not... Yeah. It's not funny. No, no. I mean, like, the whole, like, oh, give me a flash of your tits when we're going over the loop on the oh roller coaster. What, how were they even supposed to do that, you fucking idiot? Like, it, it's dumb. And then, you know, even at the funeral um, of the two girls that die in the tanning beds, even at the funeral, he's trying it on with the goth girl. It's like, stop. Yeah. You're just ridiculous now. It, it, the joke's played out way too much and it, it just becomes... I'm, I'm glad he gets um, quite a gory death. Yeah, and, and Ian McKinley, she's fucking great on me. Like, that forced goth stereotype that he does... <laughs> Whereas at the funeral, he starts shouting out about, oh, do you think they wanted to die? Oh, fuck off. Yeah, yeah. They weren't even your friends. And, Why and, are you shouting at their funeral? And then when he starts stalking, and one thing we need to mention about this film is, you know how they have their little song in each film? This one has the best song from any Final Destination film. Do you not remember? Oh my God, remind me. There's someone walking oh, behind there you. Is. There's a song there with the lyrics, literally. The s- walking behind you. And there is literally a moment in this film where Mary Elizabeth Winstead is driving and the song says, turn around. Turn around. And she literally turns around and there's Ian McKinley fucking driving behind her like an yeah. idiot. It's, it's so funny. There it, is so... It's so ridiculous. Could they not afford Total Eclipse of the Heart? No. Because... <laughs> I'm sure it would have worked better with Bonnie Tyler belting out, turn around. (laughs) Oh my Um, God, they did that at the beginning of Urban Legend, didn't they? They did. Turn around (laughs) and he was in the back seat. (laughs) But it is so dumb. Um, But Imakinley is just so annoying. All he does is whine and... And then when he gets killed, even when he gets killed, he has his middle finger sticking up. Yeah, and it... It's kind of weird that he suddenly becomes the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. It's that thing um, that Nightmare on Elm Street did where Freddy Krueger suddenly didn't become the bad guy. Mm. And, and you're suddenly rooting for him. I mean, it kind of happened in part two. Uh, but this one, it's like, okay, let's just kill these fuckers. Yeah. E- even Wendy, at points, I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, but I mean, for most likable character, we've had to go with Wendy. We have had to go with Wendy. Um, I mean, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, props to her, because for half the film, she's just getting blood splattered in her face. <laughs> the amount of reaction shots of her just getting blood splattered <laughs> in the face and her like, ah, ah, it must happen like five or six times. Uh- <laughs> It must do. Yeah, it does. It's the same shot. Uh, I love Mary Elizabeth Winstead. She's the best thing of everything she's in. Um, Bless her. She doesn't get a lot of good roles. Um, I mean, even, you know, even Birds of Prey, where she was very much a side character, she was the best thing about that. Um, You know, Die Hard 4. She's been in a lot of shit that she's been really good in. Um, But here, you know... 
it is a push, but she is the the le- the most likable character. Yeah, she is. She is. It, it's not. I mean, she's got not, she's got Kevin not competition. She's got Kevin linger around like a bad odor, like throughout the whole film. So I'm trying to get a picture of a camel toe. <laughs> um, and the best death scene is the, the tanning bed. So you can continue now. Yeah. Um, what was I saying about the tanning bed? You're talking about why it's so great. Oh, it, yeah. What makes it so great is that it, it's probably the most believable, yeah. um, really, in the film. Um, because, you know, people can... I mean, it, it is plausible that you could get trapped in a, in a sunbed, yeah. you know, in a tanning bed. It is plausible that that could happen. Mm. I, I mean, it, the, the setup's still elaborate. But the, the payoff is probably, I mean, I, I don't go on tanning beds. Um, but for people who are, I suppose a fear could be that you get trapped in there yeah. and you get burnt alive. Yeah. You get burnt to a crisp. Uh, it's a funny scene. Um, I find the actresses played it really well. They yeah. played those characters really well. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's just a fun death scene. Yeah. And then that cut at the end to them... Uh, because they're such great best friends that their coffins <laughs> buried together. are getting buried next to each <laughs> other. Uh, it was just funny. It was a funny image. Yeah. yeah, it was a great scene. That brings us, unfortunately, to The Final Destination. Released in 2009, back when my, my film taste was a little questionable, but even I thought this was a piece of shit back then. Um... <laughs> Directed by back David... In t- back in 2009, when I didn't have Gary to go to the cinema with me, <laughs> so I kind of only went to the cinema to watch whatever people wanted to watch. <laughs> uh, directed by David R. Ellis, who directed Final Destination 2, which is fucking shocking. Um, budget, $40 million. <laughs> 40 million? Let's just say the budget went on 3D. It made just over a hundred and eighty-six million worldwide. Yeah. Obviously, about fifteen quid of that's from me. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, this was <laughs> the first film in the franchise to be presented in three D. Now, this was two thousand and nine. This is when real D three D, the the one that we know now, the one that you know, the three D where it looks like you're looking through a window, um, is a thing. Yeah. It, it became a thing that year. You had My Bloody Valentine three D, you had Saw three D. I went to see that as well. Um you know, this was the year where it was in. It was only like I think it was a year before Avatar did it, or maybe in the same year. Um this was when three D was a big deal. Yeah. Um you and could it tell. stuck around for a yeah. while. I yeah. mean it's it then it developed into 3D TVs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I remember there was this huge buzz about Sky Sports being in 3D. Ooh. So what everybody thought that would be is that David Beckham, it would look like David Beckham's in your living room playing football. What it actually was is that the scores sort of stuck out from the TV a little <laughs> the, bit. The darts look really good with it. Because, it, I mean, well, it was a fucking nightmare to watch because every time someone threw a dart, you'd flinch. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, it was a massive deal. We've got a 3D TV and we watched this in 3D. Thank God, because if we watched this in 2D, I think I may have gave it half a star. <laughs> yeah. Like, the 3D is the best thing about this film. It is. Whereas it My is. Bloody Valentine, 
the focus was on the plot, the deaths, and the 3D. It was just like an old school horror film where things come out of the screen, and that was it. It was gimmicky, but there was still a good film there to be found. Um, but with this and with Saw 3D, the the, voc- the focus was on the 3D. Let's face it. Yeah. Nothing else. And it, it, it's it's telling that in 2009, the two films that I remember seeing at the cinema, and I, I think maybe potentially the only films I saw, saw at the cinema, um, are the 3D films. Yeah. So you've got all these people, you know, that made films that didn't necessarily need to be in 3D into 3D. Mm. Because it was guaranteed uh, an up on the profits. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Uh, is the first Final Destination film to not include Tony Todd? <gasps> Apparently due to his scheduling conflicts with Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. I mean, that's lose-lose for Tony Todd either way. <laughs> yeah. Nick Zeno, who plays the insatiable, unbearable, any word you can think of. Um, to describe someone who you hate. Um, fuck, what's his character's name? Hunt. Hunt, there we go. And it sounds like Oh cunt. my God. Hunt the cunt. Um, Nick Zeno <laughs> plays him uh, and he ad-libbed his donkey punch line in the sex scene. Lovely. Uh, Zeno stated in an interview that David R. Ellis encouraged him to make up outrageous lines in various takes, which just leads to him talking about sex a lot. Yeah... Yeah, that he doesn't get much character development. Um, I don't think we'd be getting donkey punch comedic lines in twenty twenty one. No, we? no. Um, the there was a whole film called Donkey Punch. Remember that? Yeah, I never watched it. Did you? No, I didn't. Thank God. But I, 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 it wasn't a comedy. No, no. Um, the film within the film, Love Lays Dying. Is actually Rennie Harlan's The Long Kiss Goodnight from 1996. The explosion shown in the film is the climax of that film. The music repeatedly used in that film is uh, the cue The Strangers Are Turning by Trevor Jones from uh, Dark City from 1998. Nice. So it wasn't actually the first 3D rom-com? No, no. no. I don't know why the fucking idiot of the lead character in this film is like, oh, that sounds like a a rom-com. It's an action film, you fucking moron. It's like the biggest film of all time in this film. There's about 20 shows of it in one go. How do you not know what that fucking film is? Sounds like a chick flick. Lovelace Dying sounds like a a chick flick. Fucking... Moron. Um, in 3D. Uh, but again, it's the whole meta thing. This film knew it was in the year of 3D and plays on it within the film itself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Ashley Tisdale auditioned for the part of Nadia in this film, but lost to Stephanie Honor. Now, that is fucking ridiculous because High School Musical was big by this point and Nadia was not exactly a main character, so they wouldn't have had to have paid him much. Which one was Nadia? The tire decapitation woman. Mechanics girlfriend. Oh, she was a nothing. Yeah. She was a throwaway character. Yeah. Ashley Tisdale wanted to play her. Yeah. Oh. So, Ashley Tisdale <laughs> fails to get in Final Destination again. At just under an hour and 22 minutes, this is the shortest film in the franchise. I'm so glad. Thank God. And it contains 11 death scenes. Are they going to do, like, a, a reboot or a re... Apparently, there's a reboot in the works. Okay, if it doesn't start Ashley Tisdale, they ain't getting my money. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, you haven't seen her act in a scary movie five. She's not the best actress. But in the I world. have seen it in Sweet in... Life of Zack and Cody, <laughs> and I know she can do this. I mean, if 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 they get her to basically play Sharpay Evans, then you know I'm sold. That would be good. 
Um, so, getting into this piece of shit. Uh, college student Nico Bannon, played by one of the worst actors I've ever seen in my entire life, watches an auto race with his girlfriend, Laurie Milligan. And their <laughs> he friend... looks a bit like James Franco, doesn't he? He does, he does. Um... Um, but he's just so wooden, there's nothing to his performance at yeah. all. But all of the performances, not just him, the cast... I remember in the cinema just feeling like something was really off because this is this big mainstream horror film and no one can act. No. Like, it it's, felt like it was straight to video. Yeah, it was it's very stilted acting. Yeah. Like, they were scared to show too much emotion yeah. in case it threw off the 3D. And the openings are so fucking dumb. Like, uh. no one really gives a shit. Like, I mean, you know, a pile-up on the road, a plane crash, roller coaster, the, even the bridge to a certain extent in part five... You know, these are all fears you know, yeah. that the people, you know, think about on a regular basis. Yeah. So if they're going to do these things. Who the fuck is scared to go and watch car racing? Exactly. Or whatever the fuck this is. Um, yeah, so Nick and Laurie are there with their friends Hunt and Janet at the McKinley Speedway for their semestral break. Nick suffers a premonition of an accident filled with CGI from the racetrack that sends debris into the grandstand, causing the stadium to collapse. And when Nick panics, a scuffle breaks out and several people leave the stadium, including Laurie, Hunt and Janet, unfortunately. Tow truck driver Carter Daniels, who's a massive racist. Uh, Mother Samantha Lane, who puts tampons in her kids' ears. Mechanic Andy uh, Kuza, his girlfriend Nadia Monroy and security guard George Lanter. Uh, as Nadia <laughs> as Nadia berates the group and asks if they've all lost their fucking minds, she gets decapitated by a stray tyre that flies out of the stadium. <laughs> and Ashley Tisdale wasn't good enough for that. <laughs> we get the opening credits uh, with the Final Destination theme song, instrumental Final Destination theme song, sadly. Uh, with X-ray versions of kills from the previous films, that's purely there for three D. Yeah, but it's it's pretty cool. I mean, that, that obviously is. that's what three D was made for yeah. for those sort of that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, on one of the nights uh, following the accident, Carter drives to George's house to defile his lawn, um, blaming the guard for preventing him from saving his wife Cynthia at the speedway. But his tow truck ignites him and causes him to be dragged down the street before it explodes and his head lands on George's doorstep. Um, I mean, prior to this, we get him dropping the N-word. It gives you a reason to want to see this guy um, explode. Yeah, this is a franchise that's based on very much stereotypical characters. Mm. Um, They hadn't had a racist before, so you might as well throw one in to this one. Um, it works. It's a satisfying death. Um, as he's being dragged down the road, why can't we be friends? Is playing on yeah. the radio, which is quite funny. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's how a do satisfying we, death scene. How do we know this is going to happen? Oh, God. <laughs> so, in the other films, you know, you have your premonition and then you look for signs. This film, because it's in 3D... Gives us these really terrible animation sequences that are essentially uh, Nick's dreams. Yeah, yeah. There is dreams, and it shows you what's going to happen. So this one, you've got like a hook um, from the truck, uh, a door, and an explosion. 
later on you get a CGI snake and it just looks it it's just embarrassing. It's it's awful. Absolutely awful. And it's all it does look like shit, but it's all quite obvious as well. So it'd be like in the previous film, mm. her having a, a dream and there's like a spinning um sunbed. Yeah. In the it's, dream. It's that obvious. It's all very obvious. It's it's really it's not, bad. It's not like trying to decode anything for it, it is for him, I suppose, but for a viewer, yeah. it's we're not trying to decode anything, which made it quite interesting in the previous films when these sort of mm. ideas, particularly in the third film, yeah. um, it, we're trying to decode as well, and it makes it all a surprise. Um, but in this one, it, that doesn't happen because he has these very obvious symbols in his dreams. Yeah, so next up he receives... Uh, a lovely animated dream of a hairdresser's uh, beauty salon yeah. and a rock going in someone's eye. So the next day, Samantha is leaving a beauty salon when a rock propelled yeah. by a lawnmower <laughs> is shot through her eye, killing her. Causing a badly dubbed uh, tampon ears kids to scream. Yeah, and this is this is disappointing because this was such a good setup. Because there's so there's so much you can do yeah, with and these they films. present you with all of the things that could have been done better. Yeah, the, but you've had the dentist, um, you've had um, tanning salon, you've had all these different places within these films. Uh, I'm struggling to think of any now. Um, and the the hair salon is a great one. Yeah. loads of scissors everywhere and it, it sets them up and there's loads of red herrings mm. and then it's just a little disappointing. And, and the ceiling fan, the ceiling fan falls down and misses her. Imagine that went onto her head. Yeah. That would have been a really great death scene. But this this is one of these things where death seems to be playing some sort of, playing up to, almost as if he's playing up for the audience. You well, this is very much um, them saying, hey, look, we've got all this budget and we're going to spend it all on 3D, so here's yeah. a pebble going through her eye. Exactly. But the idea is that Def could have dropped that fan on her head. Yeah. Like it, the fact that the fan dropped was Def itself yeah. making it happen. Do you know what I mean? I feel like the other films don't do this as much, um, where Def is playing some sort of red herring game mm. with the audience yeah um i mean coming up obviously in five it does there's one scene that does this to absolute perfection yeah. where it pays off the possibilities whilst doing the big build-up with the red herrings as well but obviously we'll get to that shortly uh after learning of the deaths and similar disasters parallel to the speedways uh nick becomes convinced that death is after them well, we think he's convinced. Can't really tell if he's acting. What a revelation. He and Laurie return to the speedway with George's help to find the next survivor, Andy. But the next day, Andy is killed at a mechanic shop. One of the worst deaths in the franchise when a carbon dioxide tank launches him through a metal grid fence. And it looks so stupid. It looks shit. It looks awful. Um, in the meantime, George is trying to give us some backstory about his character with no energy in his performance at all. Uh, and we find out that he killed his wife and daughter in a car accident because he was drunk. He's the only one that even gets a little bit of uh, character development. Yeah. Just a little smidge. Um, when the racist guy was outside his home, <laughs> we could see he was reading a book. And his big fat like, book. And Massive then he writing. puts it down, it just says, Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> 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 
gross. <laughs> Clunky. <laughs> After Nick predicts that Hunt and Janet's deaths will involve water, George and Laurie find the latter, who is trapped in a malfunctioning car wash, just like Carnival of Souls remake. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and narrowly managed to rescue her. However, Nick arrives too, uh, too late to save Hunt, uh, who's just had a really graphic sex scene where he just proves how obnoxious he is some more. Um, he accidentally activates a country, calls pl- country, cl- country club's pool drainage system and ends up being disemboweled by the drain pipe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it it um, it it's all right. It's all right. This whole sequence, though, it didn't. It's it's fucking dumb. It's so dumb. Um, I mean. What was that car wash going to do to her head anyway? Just give her a clean? Yeah, that's what like, I was thinking. Like a hot wax, maybe? <laughs> hot wax facial? But I mean, it's, it's the lesser two evils. They're both unlikable characters, you know. Should fucking kill them both. My hope, my uh, hope whilst watching it was that neither of them would have gotten there in time. No, yeah, and, exactly. And uh, they both would have, like, died. Yeah. <laughs> Simultaneously. Yeah, it would have been great. Um, I suppose the swimming pool one is the better of the two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, um, four days later, Nick realises from news report that another spectator, Jonathan Groves, was rescued after the Speedway's collapse. Now, I'll give it to the film. It, it does make you forget this character exists. But that's probably just because you're desperate for a film to fucking end. <laughs> yeah, um, but every time I watch it, I always, I always forget that he's in this film. Um, Nick and George track Jonathan down at a hospital where he was recovering from the accident, only to witness him being crushed by an overflowing bathtub falling through the ceiling. Uh, next to the, the bathtub was being run for another racist guy. Yeah, so they're in the hospital and... Um... This bath's being run by one of the nurses, and for an, an old guy, and it, the 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 nurses, um, Korean, a, Korean, um, gentleman, and so the guys like, oh, I killed loads of your kind in the war. Mm, um, and the nurse leaves the room, but leaves the <laughs> tap running, so it overflows. So this this is also a really weird one because this isn't really an act of death. No, I mean, if anything, he's probably hoping something bad will happen to that guy and who could blame him? <laughs> but this isn't an elaborate accident with a setup. Mm. This is a incompetent nurse, you know? Um, yeah. It, it's kind of, I don't, I don't really get it as no. a final destination death scene. Uh, prior to this as well, we had a scene of uh, a comedic scene of George trying to kill himself and death not letting him kill himself. Yes, yeah, that was funny. Uh, and then they all dis- they realised that de- that was it, it was all over and done with, and uh, they're gone with living their lives. To which George asks Nick and uh, Laurie what they're going to do with their time, and Laurie's like, "Oh, I can think of a few things." I'm like, "Oh, oh." <laughs> uh, <laughs> And then they start like listing all the places they're gonna go together, and it's like get fucked. Um, but anyway, uh, as they leave, Nick receives a premonition of a multitude of explosions at the mall that leads to Janet and Laurie's deaths, and George, who is run over by an ambulance in the same style as Terry in the first film with the bus. So it is literally the exact same death scene. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> what are you going to see at the mall? Lovelace dying. That boring chick flick. The boring 3D chick flick. And I have a lot of issues with this scene because they're in the cinema and they're watching this fucking film. The, the cinema's packed. Uh, absolutely not a single seat there. It's completely sold out. Every screen sold out of this film. And, um, <laughs> and Janet, who... It is Janet. Isn't it? Yeah, Janet, who, you know... She was in the car wash scene. She's witnessed all these other deaths that I've got. She knows what's been going on. She was fully on board. She believed what was going on. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, when Laurie's like, hang on, I've got a bad feeling something's going to happen. She's like, oh my God, you piece of shit. Fuck off. Yeah. And it's like, what are you talking about? You know what's been going on. Yeah. But she has this change that she like, all of a sudden she doesn't believe it. Yeah. It's it's so weird and, and jarring because, you know, her head was trapped in that car wash. Yeah. And she would have died if she wasn't saved by her friend who was, you know, there simply because of a premonition that was had. So then she has one and she's like, oh, I'm meant to be here. Maybe I'm (laughs) meant to be here to watch this film. Maybe it's my destiny to be here and watch this This is where I was meant to be originally instead of the race course. No, you weren't. Yeah. Like, this is where I was meant to be. I have to watch this film. And then she, the cinema screen explodes. Yeah. And she gets loads of fucking nails in the face. It's great. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And then after this, um, during a premonition, Laurie gets trapped in an escalator and uh, turned into just lots of blood and guts. Yeah, yeah. She gets sort of um, fed through the mechanics, doesn't she? Yeah. She, uh, yeah, in, in one of the... Slightly better looking scenes. Um, yeah, so obviously Nick wakes up from his premonition. He fails to save George, who was run over by the ambulance. And uh, he runs back to the mall to try and stop the explosion before it occurs. There's loads of barrels there. That's a spontaneous combustion on them. Yes. Spontaneous combustion. Barrels inside a shopping mall. <laughs> behind a cinema that says... Spontaneous combustion. It's How stupid. dumb were the writers of this fucking film? Yeah, they they must have just been stupid. They must have. They should. The spontaneous combustion, as we all know, means that they can explode out of nowhere. Yeah, anytime. That's what the word spontaneous means. Therefore, that should not have said spontaneous combustion. It's it's honestly like a child has wrote this film. Yeah. Um. Nick is pinned to the wall by death, firing a nail gun at him for some reason. Um, he manages to stop a fire before it spreads to several spontaneously combustible barrels, saving everyone in the process. And he's a real hero. Well and we know this because two weeks later, he's walking past the construction site and he's like, Hey man, aren't these, uh, aren't these screws a little loose? Safety pays. <laughs> Fuck off. Then he walks into a cafe and a homeless guy from earlier in the film walks up to him and is like, you're a real hero. You saved everyone's lives. F- no, no, he's not. You put way too much emotion I know, yeah, that. yeah. You're a real hero. You <laughs> saved everyone's lives. And he's like, uh, you know, it's not easy to be near a fuck off. Nick, Laurie and Janet um, get some coffees. They have skinny lattes because they're women. And he has a big, <laughs> big, massive... Fucking chocolate cream, whatever the fuck that is. And the girl's like, oh, that looks disgusting. <laughs> yeah. 
because, because in these type of films and TV series, the women have to drink skinny lattes or green teas, but the men can drink and eat whatever they like yeah. and still have a six-pack. Oh, yeah, he gets to show his six-pack off a lot in this film. Yeah. Has to do it. And so, so does the other guy. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Cunt, the cunt. Um, during a conversation, however, Nick starts to see more omens and alludes to the theory that the chain of events since the Speedway disaster was meant to lead to them uh, to be where they are right now for death to strike. Just as he realises this, a loose scaffold outside collapses on the road, causing the truck to swerve and crash into the cafe, killing him, Laurie and Janet. Now that sounds like it makes for a really brutal death scene, but it doesn't. Because they obviously ran out of budget and we get to see this in x-ray form. We do. <laughs> and this was the only thing I truly remembered from watching it at the cinema. Was this final scene with the uh, x-ray fucking 3D shit. Awful. It's absolutely it really awful. Is. Like I said, the only good thing about this film is the 3D. There's nothing else redeeming about it at all. It's The 3D works because it does that old school... 3D, uh, like Friday the 13th 3D, where they like start waving things at the camera. Yeah. And that works. I like that. I, I I mean, that's what 3D is for. I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not here wanting to watch Casablanca in 3D. You know, I want to see the gimmicky shit if yeah. I'm watching a 3D film. Um, and that's great. Um, but if you're watching this in 2D, you're going to have a miserable time. Oh my God, 2D, it looks like shit. Yeah. It really does. The effects look like shit. Um, I mean, you know, it's fucking 1D acting. It's not even fucking 2D acting. Yeah, yeah couldn't pick a single likeable character for this film. Not a single one. Um, no. So instead we're giving you three unlikable characters. So most annoying characters in this film are Racist Carter. Yes. And Hunt and Janet. Now... For the first half of this film, I genuinely didn't think Janet was going to be unlikable. She just seemed a little annoying. Mm. Uh, fucking hell. By the time it gets to that cinema scene, she was unbearable. She, she got herself a new outfit. She was this flashy girl now. She's, you know, full on fashion and everything. I thought, you know what? Yeah, great. Good for you. You got rid of your dickhead of a boyfriend. But then her attitude. Oh, my God. She just becomes... She becomes a boyfriend. Yeah. She becomes really cocky and really unlikable. She shamed her friend for wearing sneakers. Um, yeah. Yeah. What a bitch. Um, and, and then the, the fuss she kicked up in the premonition about being in that cinema, it was just ridiculous. It really was ridiculous. You have to be here. No, you don't. Fuck off. There's like a thousand screenings. You can yeah. Come back again. Yeah. Um, Hunt is obviously, he's just a sexual predator. Of um, Played for laughs. Yeah. Uh, you know, every line of dialogue in this film involves something sexual from him. And it's just... And he plays golf. He, of course, is a fucking idiot. It just wears thin. Yeah. It wears thin. And then at the start of the film, when he's at the race course, like, I only come here to see a crash. What? Why? What? Yeah. Is that what straight people do? Did it go to racing matches to watch crashes? <laughs> Maybe. Um, and then racist Carter, I mean, it's in the name, really. Of course. Um, Which is the thing, the guy, the security guard guy, mm. I mean, obviously he's meant to be the most likeable one, but it, it's just shoddy develop, character well, development. He's the only one that gets any, but it's literally a case of, here's a book on Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, he killed his wife and kid. 
exactly. in a car crash. Yeah. You know, he was an alcoholic. It's really not even that redeemable, really, with anything else in the film. He's still Reading likeable. a book on Alcoholics Anonymous isn't really going to cut it. No. Uh, in terms of, you, you kind of killed your wife and child. Uh, best death scene is Nadia's tire decapitation. Yes. It's one of the more random deaths, uh, but it, it's funny. It, it is. It is funny. It's out of nowhere. I'd also uh, say Hunt's death. Yeah. It's okay, because it plays on a fear that people have, I suppose. Uh, I'm sure we've all been young and thought maybe we could get, like, trapped in the swimming pool mm. in, in one of the, um, whatever it's called. Oh, I always remember um, hearing about uh, something similar, obviously not to that extent. Um, when I was younger, that happened with someone who had a, a, some sort of accident in a swimming pool like that and didn't end well. Um, but yeah, so that that was on my mind when I was watching it. So yeah, you know, I mean, the idea of drowning and no one being able to help yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, thankfully, that brings us on to Final Destination Five, the most recent entry in the franchise from twenty eleven, uh, directed by Stephen Quayle, uh, who directed Aliens of the Deep, Into the Storm, and Renegades. His second unit director on Titanic, uh, The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. The Haunted Mansion, Avatar, and Greyhound. Um, this is the first entry in the franchise that isn't by a director who's previously worked on another film in the franchise. And it really shows. I Yeah, I think it works. It's it's good to have a fresh take on these things. Yeah. It's made on a budget of $40 million, um, Same as the last film. But it goes a lot further um, this time around. And it made just under $158 million at the box office. It's still very much a big success. Uh, it features the longest opening disaster out of all five films in the series. The bridge disaster lasts for four minutes and forty-four seconds, and I'd say it's the most epic scale of yeah of yeah, the uh, uh, yeah absolutely yeah. scenes. Um, you know the special effects are really big scale. They go, it's more action packed. Yeah, um, a music video for the song "New Romance" by Miles Fisher. Uh, who's in this film, starring the cast of Final Destination 5 was made to coincide with the release of the film and can be found on YouTube. In true Final Destination fashion, the video has the cast meeting their ends in very grisly ways. Uh, one rejected... But lo- the whole thing is it's they're playing Saved by the Bell characters. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like Saved by the Bell with Final Destination. Final Destination. Uh, one rejected location for a death sequence in the film was a water park. Okay. Now, I mean, I don't know what they could do for an opening sequence in Final Destination 6, but a water park wouldn't be a bad shout. That wouldn't be a terrible shout. Even if it's recently been done <laughs> in Aqua Slash. Yeah, Aqua Slash was a slasher film. Yeah. Um, very incredibly fucking boring. <laughs> the, only, uh, the only thing that happens in Aqua Slash. Yeah. Um, I mean, they could do Water Park. Yeah. I think there's loads they could do. There is absolutely loads you could do for Final Destination opening disasters. Yeah. There's loads. Uh, Ashley Tisdale. <laughs> Ashley Tisdale auditioned for the role of Candice Hooper, but was turned down again. I don't get it. Surely she'd be a big name for the film. Yeah. Is, is there like a hate campaign against I don't Ashley Tisdale? Her acting outside of High School Musical really isn't great. 
I mean, it wasn't great in High School Musical, let's be fair. Well, how dare you? Um, <laughs> in Scary Movie 5, it's fucking rough. I mean, the film as a whole is rough, but... Uh, was she the lead in Scary yeah, Movie yeah. 5? Uh-huh. When did that come out? Well, it, it parodied Ma... Not Ma. Um, what's that fucking... The Octavia Spencer? No, no, no that, certainly not. The, the one Del Toro produced... Mama. Ma- that's the one. The it, one with it, it, yeah. Jessica Chastain. And, yeah, and uh, Paranormal Activity. So we're talking, what, 2013? Oh, okay. So, so like it's that. after this. Um, the second film in the Final Destination series to be in 3D. Yeah. 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 Did it need it? No, probably not. I mean, the death scenes look good in 3D, but there's a lot in between where the 3D doesn't go anywhere no um, but I, I, I hope I hope it's an ongoing thing I think there's a lot that can be done with it are we past 3D films now mine are still being released but is, is the interest still there I mean Into the Spider-Verse worked well yeah. in 3D yeah. I suppose the Marvel films was Endgame in 3D yeah all of them all of them were in 3D did we watch it in 3D no we watched good. it in 2D good um, now if you are going to watch these films and you haven't seen them yet, I'm going to give you a spoiler warning now for this one because it is a big deal about this film. So here's your spoiler warning. Forward on a bit if uh, you don't want to know. Uh, this is a prequel. And clues to the twist ending that make it a prequel uh, can be found by seeing the old-fashioned office phones, the clunky keyboard in the doctor's office, the Liberty license plate um, on William Bloodworth's fan, uh, which was used in New York until 2001. The song playing on the radio, I Will Buy You A New Life. And another clue is uh, when Olivia's boyfriend makes a reference to Lisa Loeb, yeah. <laughs> whose breakout single State debuted in 1994. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, we even said that though, didn't we? Because yeah. I'm a, quite a fan of her music. Uh, and uh, I even said, I was like, Okay, I, I love her, but that's quite a weird reference to have in this film. <laughs> There's a Sixth Sense reference as well. And it's like, I, when I watched this in the cinema for the first time, it blew my mind. I, did, I, I didn't know it was going to happen. And oh my God, it is an amazing twist. Such a good twist. Uh, and I think that's what really elevates this film for me, because it's so clever the way they play it out. Yeah, and again, this is what helps having a film like this from a fresh perspective mm. from a different perspective um it, it's the same reason I'm, I'm quite hopeful for Scream 5 yeah you know it's taking something and it's I don't know I suppose 11 years after the original film came out and I'm talking about Final yeah. Destination 5 so depending on how young they are you could have had people who I'm a real fan of the series and really wanted to make their version of Final Destination. I always remember um, Peter Jackson did his screenplay for uh, Dream Child. Mm. Um, I always think, you know what, seeing it from that perspective, uh, from a fresh up-and-coming talent who's such a fan of a franchise... um, it can sometimes it doesn't work, um, but it does work. You know, yeah. getting that real fresh perspective. Yeah, on things. No, definitely. 
And, and I think this is why I look at this and the first two as a trilogy more than, you know, including three and four. Because the story links up. It makes sense. Yeah. It, you know, this ends as the first film begins. If you watch those three together, the story comes full circle. Yeah. It feels more complete. Um, but, I mean, it references three and four. You know, there's little things here and there. Like, you see the, the logs from two um, going past the bus in this film. Uh the uh, Lisa Loeb girl has uh, a photo taken from that same ride from part three. Uh, the racist guy in this has been to that same racing car stadium at part four. <laughs> you know, little, little things like that. It, it all, you know, it, it, it was made by a fan of these films. You can yeah. tell. Yeah. Uh, most of the death sequences are based on real life incidents. The opening bridge collapse is inspired by the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. Additionally, someone has died from an acupuncture needle stabbing into their heart after falling off a table. Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, since the fourth film of the series, now that's what I was saying earlier, since the fourth film of the series is called The Final Destination, that is a hint alone that this is a prequel. It is technically The Final Destination. Oh, okay. Well, you know. We definitely weren't thinking we, of that at the time. We didn't we believe it with uh, Friday the 13th Part <laughs> 4, the last chapter, no. and I ain't going to believe it now. <laughs> and uh, body count is actually just eight in this one, not including the opening disaster. Ah. So, your, your go, final film? Yes. Sam Lawton is on his way to a company retreat with his colleagues. While their bus crosses the North Bay Bridge, Sam has a premonition that high winds will cause the bridge under construction to collapse, killing everyone except his ex-girlfriend, Molly Harper, whom he manages to get across the bridge safely. Um, now, we disagree on this one, um, but I think the actress that plays Molly Harper is really bad I don't disagree I don't mean she's a great actress but I mean if you look at her compared to the people in part 4 fucking hell I, I think she needed to be in part 4 it, she she's, yeah, she's not the best she's not the best I didn't think she was very good beautiful girl beautiful girl just can't um, panicked he persuades Molly his friends Nathan Sears and Peter Friedkin see what they did there <laughs> Peter's girlfriend Candice Hooper see what they did there his boss, Dennis Lapman, and co-workers, Olivia Castle, see what they did there, <laughs> and Isaac Palmer, to leave just as... Ah, Laura Palmer. Ah. To leave just as the bridge collapses. Uh, it would be Leland Palmer, wouldn't it? Yeah, whatever. Oh, yeah. Um, after being interrogated by FBI agent Jim Block, the survivors attend a memorial service for their deceased co-workers, where they are being watched by coroner William Bloodworth. Um, so yeah, Tony Todd's back. Bigger role. As, as, as he does get a bigger <laughs> role. Uh, FBI agent Jim Block is played by Courtney B. Vance. Um, in a, what the hell's he doing in this film? Uh, <laughs> casting. Um, if you remember, if, if anyone watched the, uh, OJ Simpson miniseries, um, he played Johnny Cochran in that. Won an Emmy, I think an Emmy. Or a Golden Globe, or both for it. He was fantastic. And when I looked at him, I was like, okay, I recognise him. And then, I, obviously, IMDb'd it, as we love to do when we're watching a film and trying to recognise people. I was like, what's he doing in this? Um, but yeah, he's good in it, and he hasn't yeah. got much to do. Um, yeah, but Tony Todd in a bigger role as well. 
Later, Candice dies during her gym practice from a chain reaction that causes her to fall off the uneven bars and snap her spine. Yeah, we'll be, we'll be discussing this a little of later. Of course, no spoiler <laughs> alert, but we'll be discussing that later. Uh, the next day, Isaac is killed at a Chinese spa when his head is crushed by a falling Buddha statue during an acupuncture session. Yeah, Isaac's your uh, pervy one in this film. Yeah, Isaac... I mean, he definitely gets what he deserves. Yeah, because he's really bad. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's horrible. The thing, the thing is, the thing is uh, because he isn't hasn't got a six-pack... Um, and he isn't conventionally um, handsome, uh, then he's worse than any of the other uh, Rondi, because everybody calls him out on being a perv, whereas in the other films, no one actually calls them out um, because they're conventionally handsome. This man, he's a little little on the larger side. Uh, He wears glasses. He's a shitty flip phone. He does have a shitty... Well, it's the year 2000, isn't it? Um... But yeah, um, so his is less acceptable sort of uh, creepy behaviour. He also steals from the, his dead co-workers. So he actually gets the voucher for the massage. Um, and of course, he believes it to be a massage with a happy ending. Obviously. Yeah. Um, he steals that from one of his dead co-workers' drawers. Um, so he's even worse than yeah. the others. Um, but yeah, he gets his comeuppance and gets a squish. <laughs> Butter to the head. Butter to the head. Uh, Bloodworth, who has been present for both deaths, tells the remaining survivors that if they wish to cheat <laughs> death, they must kill someone who was never meant to die on the bridge and thereby claim their remaining lifespan. <laughs> never knew rule by Tony Todd. Yeah. Never before the first film. The problem is, he's given all these warnings... And they've all ended up dead anyway. It's funny that... I think it's quite funny that he doesn't bring that rule back in your films. It's like, oh shit, okay. Well, that clearly didn't work here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let me think of something new for the next film. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't actually know who the hell this Bloodworth guy is. So really he could just be a random guy giving out <laughs> theories. Because they never actually end up working in the end. He's just... He's just he just says anything for shits and giggles, doesn't he? Yeah. He's like, ah, oh, this one will be funny. Tell them to kill each other. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> Get their lifespan. <laughs> At the same time, Sam and Molly fail to save Olivia, who falls out of a window to her death at an eye surgery clinic. That seems fucking... It gets me because I just don't like paint to the eyes. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose people who, I suppose, obviously, you, you're a glasses wearer, yeah. as I am. So you've been in that position, not mm-hmm. the, obviously not with a laser, uh, but uh, sort of being stuck there with your yeah. eye open and, and such. Uh, Sam learns that the survivors are dying in the order that they were meant to die on the bridge and realises that Nathan is next. Nathan, who has returned to a factory, acts to the factory, accidentally kills his co-worker, Roy Carson, during an argument. Um, so essentially what he... he has a, This guy has a vendetta against him. He's yeah. clearly racist. Uh, and Nathan is essentially his boss. Yeah. Um, so Nathan's very much the office supervisor, whereas um, Roy Carson is... Um, Trina's that's a reference to uh, Friday the 13th Part 5. Maybe. That <laughs> um, he's uh, uh, very much the, um, what shall we call it, 
the hands-on. He, yeah. He's doing the work. So he resents him um, and also resents him for his race. We're led to yeah. believe. Um, so they're arguing. A death comes for Nathan, but Nathan manages to, in trying to get Roy out of the way, actually pushes Roy in the way, and he ends up with a hook in his neck, <laughs> and he's hung... Um, it ends up going, like, straight through his head, doesn't it? Yeah. But he's hung for everyone to see. I see. Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't see that in the film. <laughs> Did you not? That's the that's choose your destiny one. <laughs> uh, he relays this information to the remaining survivors who believe that Nathan must have claimed Roy's remaining lifespan. When Dennis arrives to question the incident, a wrench launched by a belt sander splits his face, killing him. That evening, Sam and Molly rekindle their relationship at a restaurant where the former was working. Peter, who has become unstable after Candice's death, interrupts the date and decides to kill Molly to take her lifespan. After Peter draws a gun, Sam and Molly both escape to the kitchen as Block overhears the gunshots from outside and enters the restaurant, only to be shot dead by Peter. The latter attempts to kill Molly and Sam to eliminate witnesses, but Sam stabs Peter with a meat spit to save Molly. Two weeks later, Sam and Molly board a plane to Paris. Before taking their seats, they notice a fight between Carter Horton and Alex Browning, who are both removed from the plane, with Miss Luton and the other students, revealing that the plane they are boarding is Volley Airlines Flight 180. The film is then revealed in a twist ending to be a prequel to the original film. Upon takeoff, Sam overhears Alex's vision from a flight attendant's conversation with a passenger. When he realises it is too late for him and Molly to escape, both of them perish along with everyone else on the plane in the explosion that follows. At Roy's memorial, Nathan learns from a co-worker about Roy's autopsy and a discovery of his brain aneurysm that would have resulted in his death anyway. As the worker leaves the bar, the landing gear from the plane breaks through the roof and crushes Nathan, setting off the events of the first four films. Yes. Dun, bum, and then we get a compilation uh, of moments from the first four films in glorious 3D set to uh, If You Want Blood, You Got It by ACDC. <laughs> Just like uh, Freddy's Dead. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, it is. Proper yeah. old school compilation of what we've already seen. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I genuinely think Five is the best in the franchise. Um, it's just such a great sequel. It does everything that works with the franchise. It just does it really well. There's a lot of likeable characters. There's a balance between likeable and unlikable characters in this film. A clear balance. Uh, the deaths are great. I think 3D works when it's during the death scenes. Uh, and of course, that ending is the best ending of the franchise. Yeah, yeah, great twist at the end. I feel like the, I feel like it was less, um, just about the killings mm. than with the other films. There's a real development to the characters. Um, not all of them, uh, but you at least get some mild development. Yeah. I mean, compared to the Final Destination. Yeah. You know these are well-rounded and developed um but you, you've got a love story there you've got the you know the the whole idea of taking someone else's lifespan is quite an interesting one yeah. um 
you know, even your perv's a little more developed. He's not just a perv, he's also a thief as well, you yeah. know? It's just a little more to each of the characters, yeah. which makes it mean a little more. I mean, the, the death um, count is the lowest, isn't it? Uh, second from the first film. Oh, okay. Yeah, and the first film you get a little more to yeah. people as well. So it, it's it's more about developing these ideas rather than just killing them off. And you've still got the elaborate deaths in there. Yeah which are great set pieces. Um, and then you've got your out of nowhere ones as well, mm-hmm. you know? So I think it's, I think it's probably the most fully rounded one since the second film. Yeah. And uh, so most annoying character, of course, goes to Isaac, the perv. It has to be. Just cause you know, that's who he is. It's a close one. Shit. It's a close one with Peter. Cause Peter gets quite annoying towards the end when he starts trying to kill everyone. Um, yeah. but it's true but he's he's upset and he's trying to deal with the idea of his own death yeah but the death of who was the love of his life you know um it's more believable than ian mckinley in yeah. part three that's true most likable is actually nathan um because yeah. he gets a really hard time in this film like i mean just because he's young and just because he's not white um, you know, he's harassed at his workplace. Yeah. But, yeah, he, he gets a real rough time um, and gets a horrible death at the end as well when he thinks he's uh, he's gotten off of it. So, he didn't get much, though, to do, does he? No, but, but that's what is, makes him more like yeah. Whenever he is on screen, he's being harassed by someone. Bless his heart, yeah. He's just trying his best, doesn't he? And but then the lead's okay as well. He's he just trying his best. He is. Too. He is. But I, I, I don't know. I just found more sorry for Nathan. It's true. It's true. Uh, the best death scene is one of the most expertly crafted death scenes in this franchise, and it is Candice's gymnastics death. Uh, this has me cringing every single time I watch it. It is disgusting. This death scene. Yeah. Yeah. Works really well. Uh, it's a great setup. This. This is what I was on about. Um, earlier on when I said this has got all the red herrings and everything but it actually plays into all of those red herrings we get to see everything that it sets up um, like when we get a pin falling onto her bench where she's doing her tricks and whatever she's doing um, and another gymnast goes on there and stands on it it's horrible and the aftermath of when you know she lands after doing her flips and gets all the powder in her face it, it looks really disgusting the practical effects are great yeah yeah it's a good red herring as well because it's not so the the whole pin and the idea is that she's about to step on that pin at any moment Mm. and that leading to her death is the red herring but the pin is there for the other gymnast to set up her death so it is a red herring but it's a clever red herring rather than just you know leading to nowhere it actually leads to, to somewhere, but in a different way to yeah. what we believe it will do. Yeah, so it's a really clever death scene. And the, probably the most memorable And for a lot of people. My franchise ranking as a whole is 5, 2, 1, 3, and the final destination last. What's yours? Mine is probably for nostalgia purposes, 1, 5, 2, 3, 4. And the best opening disaster, we both agree, is Final Destination 2 with uh, the pilot. Yes. 
Yeah. Yeah, and for them to... I mean, that would have taken a hell of a lot of work to yeah. set all that up um, without really much CGI either. Yeah. A lot of good stunt work for that one. The uh, worst opening disaster is, of course, the Final Destination's racing car stadium. Absolutely. Which <sighs> just... Filled with CGI and just stupid. It, well, it just looked like shit. It really looked like shit. And the best closing disaster is Final Destination 5. I mean, I know we've already seen it as an opening disaster in the first film, um, but it works. It really works. It's more effective um, because, obviously, you know these characters, what they're letting us house in for, and you're led to really like them before that point. Yeah, yeah, very true. Uh, yeah, so that is Final Destination franchise. What are your closing thoughts? Uh, my closing thoughts is that watching the films, apart from part four, is a fun time had by all. Um, I would say if you enjoy um, throwaway horror, because it, it is throwaway. Yeah, I assume most like, people have seen it that's listening to this. Yeah, if you, if, yeah but if you like your Saturday night popcorn horror films, then watch them. Um, yeah, obviously, I say it loads of times on this podcast. Don't expect, you know, Kurosawa. Um, don't expect, you know, uh, Kubrick. Expect a fun time. Yeah. Where you don't really have to think too much. Even the confusing parts, you can just leave it <laughs> just whatever happens happens you know yeah you don't have to try and justify all of it yeah absolutely yeah so that is final destination and if you are listening on itunes then don't forget to rate review subscribe like follow on everything else uh i am dead at gas 92 on letterboxd i've finally done that women in horror month list i said i'll do so go check that out uh, are you really getting it together? I know you? I am. I'm Fan very organised. Very organised. That's why I don't promise anything. Then I'm not forced to do anything. Casmo two hundred five on Instagram. Gascruise ninety two on Twitter. I'm Chris Barker eight two three on Letterboxd, Instagram, and Twitter. And we'll be back next week, where again we're not just discussing one film. We are discussing three films, and we'll be discussing Lucio Fortune's The Gates of Hell trilogy. Yeah. So if you want to watch them before then, you need to watch City of the Living Dead, The Beyond, and The House by the Cemetery. And enjoy, enjoy. Yes. So we will see you at same time, same place next week. Bye. <laughs>